Swagmen and Swagettes, this episode is sponsored by GiveWell. I'm so proud to support them. Imagine if every year you saved a person's life. One year you rescued someone from a burning building, the next year you saved someone from drowning, the year after that you're out for dinner with your partner or maybe you're on a date, you notice someone having a heart attack and you perform CPR and save their life. Think about the warm glow you'd feel living this extraordinary life. The truth is we have an opportunity to do this every single year of our lives just by targeting our donations to the most effective charities in the world. How is this possible? Three premises. Number one, if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you make more than 19500 US dollars per year post-tax and are therefore in the richest 10% of the world. Two, we can do 100 times more good for others than for ourselves by focusing on the parts of the world most in need, because a doubling of income will always increase subjective well-being by the same amount. And three, in the same way as the success of for-profit companies isn't normally distributed, some charities are vastly more effective than others. But how do you find the most effective charities? Well, since 2010, GiveWell.org has helped over 50,000 donors find the places where their donations can save or improve lives the most. Here's how. GiveWell dedicates over 20,000 hours a year to researching charitable organizations and handpicks a few of the highest impact evidence-based charities. The best ones GiveWell has found can save a statistical life for three to $5,000. Donors have used GiveWell to donate more than $750 million. These donations will save over 75,000 lives and improve the lives of millions more. Here's the best part. GiveWell is free. They publish all of their research on their site for free so donors can understand their work and recommendations. GiveWell doesn't take a cut of your donation and they allocate your tax-deductible donation to the charity you choose. GiveWell is a key organization in the effective altruism movement, a movement I first became loosely involved in five years ago. I've run several episodes with leading effective altruists, including Will McCaskill, Peter Singer, Jan Talon, and Rob Wiblin, and I personally give to the Against Malaria Foundation, which distributes bed nets to prevent malaria at a cost of about $5 to provide one net. If you've never donated to GiveWell's recommended charities before, you can have your donation matched up to $1,000 before the end of June or as long as matching funds last. Just go to givewell.org slash swagman and pick podcast and then the Jolly Swagman at checkout. Make sure they know that you heard about GiveWell from the Jolly Swagman podcast to get your donation matched. That's givewell.org slash swagman, select podcast, and then select the Jolly Swagman at checkout. You're listening to the Jolly Swagman podcast. Here's your host, Joe Walker. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, swagmen and swagettes, welcome back to the show. It is great to have you back and I am thrilled to be able to share this conversation with you. Before I introduce our guest, a quick plug for my weekend emails. These are getting a lot of positive feedback. Every weekend, I send out some links to interesting things I've been reading or watching. Make sure you don't miss out. To sign up, head to thejspod.com. That is thejspod.com. Swagman and Swagettes, I'm a big fan of Australia's 24th Prime Minister, Paul Keating, but I've always been fascinated by the man he vanquished in the unwinnable election in 1993. 
And so on Saturday the 22nd of May, I popped down to Barrel to see how a former Liberal leader has been handling the political wilderness. John Hewson represents a strange sort of Cincinnatus character to me, if Cincinnatus' farm was a nice property in the Southern Highlands. He's a politician from a bygone time, a time when wonks could still become leader, a time when fewer people went into politics simply to stick their snouts in the trough. I admire Keating, but I also admire Hewson, even if I wouldn't have supported every aspect of Fightback, his economic rationalist policy manifesto, had I been alive when he launched it in 1991. Hewson was leader of the Federal Liberal Party from 1990 to 1994, which saw him go toe-to-toe with the great political cage fighter of that era, Paul Keating. Hewson is an economist with a PhD from Johns Hopkins University. Before being elected to parliament, he worked for the IMF, the RBA, the Fraser government as an economic advisor. He was a director of Macquarie Bank. When he left politics in 1994, a few months before he was due to qualify for the pension paid to former parliamentarians who've served for a particular length of time, he went back to work. He has myriad business interests, he's active on boards and in charities, and he is professor in the Crawford School of Public Policy at ANU. In this wide-ranging conversation, John and I reflect on the degeneration of politics in Australia, he gives me the inside scoop on big policy debates of the past, and we discuss Australia's housing bubble and the precarious position in which it leaves our society. Swagmen and swagettes, without much further ado, please welcome the great John Hewson. John Hewson, welcome to the Jolly Swagman podcast. Well, thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. Great to meet I've you. I've admired your work for a long time. Oh, wow. Thank you so and, much. And uh, your weekly reading list is, <laughs> is, is, is to behold, really. <laughs> thanks so much. I wasn't aware that you were a, uh, a listener. Yeah, well, I, I don't get to listen to them all, but I see the range that you do pursue, and um, it's pretty balanced. You know, you're not running a particular agenda, which I think is to your credit... A lot of podcast series that just run a particular line or interview a particular type of person, pushing a particular barrow, but um, you don't seem to do that, so it's good. No, I'm interested in all sides and very excited to meet you and speak with you. I should give a quick shout out to the Country Women's Association for putting us up here in uh, this illustrious hall in We understand the significance of the women's issue. (laughs) Exactly. We've come to the home of uh, the CWA. And I wanted to kick off. So, John, last night I was, I was rereading parts of Fight Back, as you do on a, on a Friday night in the 2020s. Suffering from insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to quote from the executive summary, which was tabled on the 21st of November 1991. Quote, The economic comparisons with our own region provide an even starker illustration of our economic decline. Throughout the Asia-Pacific region, real GDP growth from 1980 to 1990 averaged 8.6% every year. The economies of Japan, Indonesia, South Korea, Malaysia, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, on average, are two and a quarter times larger than they were just 10 years ago. By contrast, Australia's GDP growth averaged just 3.5%, end quote. Just 3.5%. That seems sort of quaint nowadays, doesn't it? You know, just, it's about half that, isn't it? I mean, uh, the recent Garno report where he's broken the uh, 
recent years into into you know different decades and uh, these uh, dog days of the last uh, decade where there was mm. where growth slowed income per capita slowed or, or became negative in some cases um, productivity collapsed uh, it's a very different world and I guess looking back in the early 90s I had a very strong view that if we were to have made Broad-based, undertaken broad-based reform. I mean, Fightback sort of got focused on the tax elements and that, but we had a strategy across just about every area of public policy. I think there are only two issues we didn't address, and that was native title, which hadn't become an issue then, although it was on its way, and, um, of course, the Republic, which Keating had floated but did nothing about in the campaign. So the um, document was broad-based reform in, in a lot of areas, completely different approach to government, and um, I think back, and, and, and what I'd said to the party at the time is that you know, one of the three things I said in my first speech at the party room is we have three major problems. One, we have disunity as an issue, and you'd had the Howard Peacock here, and the, some tension between Libs and Nats. Second one was we had no policy credibility, being kind. You know, Howard's tax policy in 87 just didn't add up, he double counted revenue. And Peacock couldn't remember the health policy in 1990. We were seen as not having substantive policy position. And the third thing was we had a very anachronistic party structure which uh, was not able to match the effectiveness of the Labor Party campaigns on the ground. And so I said, we've got... Uh, uh, there are our challenges. I said quite openly, I think it'll take six years to do that. Um, and... Um, you know, but we'll go as hard as we can in three years to see whether we can get those issues addressed. And, um, but all in the context of a view about where we wanted the country to be. And so we used a loose concept that uh, in so many areas we could be a, a leader in the Asia-Pacific region by 2000. So everything we looked at was in the context of that decade, from 1990 where you described where, we were, where we'd been, where we were coming to, and then, um, you know, what we would need to do to actually take a leadership role in education or in health policy or aged care, or, as well as tax and, you know, um, fiscal management and so on. And so everything we did in policy development was against that 10-year objective, which is sort of novel today because you're <laughs> lucky to have an horizon to the next election. The last budget's horizon vision runs out at the next election, which probably be earlier rather than later. Um, and that's really a tragedy, the drift that we've seen in the focus on good government and good policy uh, to um, just a straight political game is staggering to me. When I lost in 93, uh, walking back into the parliament on the first day, the two houses of parliament come together, and as Keating and I walked out of the lower house to the upper house, he took me aside. <laughs> And uh, he, he apologised. He said, I just want to say that I said some terrible things about you and I called you a lot of names. I didn't believe any of them, which made me somewhat nervous. But um, then he said, you know, but you've got to understand, John, that, and I've never forgotten this, that politics to me is just a game. And I will say or do whatever I have to to win. So he was rationalising the fact that although when he'd done the tax package with Hawke in 85 and Hawke had taken out a broad-based consumption tax, and a deal with Bill Kelty. Keating had made some very passionate statements about, passionate statements about, you know, I'm going to die fighting for this uh, tax reform and so on. And then, of course, coming into my election, he ditched the whole lot to try and um, 
paint me as a radical alternative that was going to do a lot of damage to the country. And what he was saying is that, you know, in the end it was winning in politics that mattered, not so much the policy. And you saw that as a feature of the Keating period. Um, you know, and he made some pretty outrageous statements. I've legislated the tax cuts, so we don't we can deliver the personal tax cuts without a GST because I've legislated them. And they became the LAW tax cuts. Six months after the election, he sends poor old Dawkins out to say, well, we actually can't do that. We've got to withdraw that legislation. It was a big lie and it got away with, uh, I guess, that as part of the, part of the attack. And, um, you know, it, it, it was always a great disappointment to me that that's how it unfolded. Uh, but he was held accountable for that because if you look at the poll reaction the following weekend, he lost about... 13 points in Victoria, about eight in New South Wales. And if you just translate that to a margin, that's about the margin that Howard won by 96. So admitting that he'd, you know, he'd lied and that he'd played politics and had really cost him by the time he got to 96. And you might remember that campaign. Howard said very little, promised very little. Uh, they focused a lot on Keating as uh, the sort of person he was, you know, the, the, uh, the arrogance of the man and the, you know, those sort of issues that they ran pretty hard on top of the fact that he'd obviously beaten me by lying. And um, nevertheless, it didn't really result in a lot of new policy. <laughs> I thought that I got quite enthusiastic that maybe Howard would do a lot, but uh, they didn't really. Mm. So, you know, yeah, when, it proves the point that economies are dynamic. And uh, there's this very simplistic view in politics that, OK, we've got to reform something, so let's just do it. And that fixes that, we'll move on to something else. And it's not static. That's not the end game. <laughs> the end game is probably a process of continuous reform in most areas, because circumstances change and challenges come and go and, and so on. So, um, you know, I, I think that uh, we've got a long way to go to try and get the political system and the political back, debate back to what I used to call evidence-based policy, which I believed in very strongly when I first started coming out of the Reserve Bank on secondment to Sir Philip Lynch's office um, as an economic advisor. I did so in the belief that good evidence-based policy would be good government and good politics with a relatively short lag. Mm. And today it's, uh, it's used as a way of uh, not doing any policy reform at all. <laughs> and there's no evidence managed to creep into the process. When Keating said to you behind that pillar that politics is a game to me and I'll do or say anything I need to in order to win, is it fair to infer from that that he thought that winning was the end game? Because Winning was the end game. Because and if you, you go back, but, not but just you need to me, You need to win first in order to be able yeah, to realise your policy agenda. But we were also about challenging people to think about what the country should be like or could be like. And, um, you know, look, I knew it was high risk and I didn't. I said to the party room and I said to all my colleagues, right through the election, I didn't think we'd win. I was the only one who didn't think we'd win, apparently, but um, I didn't think we'd win. Remember, on the night of the election, I went, we had been to all the polling booths in my seat and uh, I said to my team, well, I reckon I've doubled my margin in Wentworth, but we aren't going to win, we're going to lose by a small margin. And the big issue was not the GST or tax as such. It was in the ether and it was, it was there. But in our nightly polling, um, you know, key marginal seats, um, large numbers in key marginal seats, it was quite clear that um, 
that the GST started to fade as an issue about 10 days out. And the big issue was health. And the fact that they ran a very successful scare campaign into those key seats, using radio and you know, letterbox drops and print media and, and uh, doorstops and door knocking and so on, to, um, to uh, say that if you went to the doctor under Houston, you know, mum took two kids to the doctor, it cost 90 something dollars. Nothing in the policy about that at all, but it really, it really resonated. And I think that um, if you look at that strategy and go back to the Hawke-Keating contest, um, Hawke at the end of the uh, um, 80s, early 90s had seen that Medicare needed to be reformed and so he'd advocated a co-payment. And um, Keating used that when he went around the caucus to solicit report, support to say, I will abolish the co-payment if I get up. And so he recognised the potency of health, I think. And um, as a party, they ran very hard on that. And the Liberal Party didn't have any effective response. I mean, I, uh, it's funny, in the run-up to the campaign, I, I thought we'd, run, we'd, we'd argued a very positive case for a long period of time, for three years, about what was possible and what we could achieve and the opportunities and so on to turn the country around by broad-based reform. So I wanted to run a... 100% positive campaign. So I called a special shadow cabinet meeting in Melbourne and I put the proposition that I thought the campaign, including the party organisation, which we don't control the campaign as such, but I put the argument that it should be a 100% positive campaign. And there was one vote for that, <laughs> which is mine. And there are a lot of them who wanted a 100% negative campaign, which is what they ended up doing. We... we uh, made about 30 television ads um, selling the benefits of fight back to each group age, to young people, you know, farmers, business, retirees, whatever. And um, they ran one of those ads in free time on the ABC late at night and they never ran any of the others. And they ran all these negative ads on Keating and uh, gunside ads and, you know, that trapdoor ads and that sort of stuff. And they spent all their money on that so that when the debate shifted, um, and um, you know, health became such a big issue. They had no money to to um, run the negative, to run the counter campaign, and um, so there were a lot of errors in that process. I mean, uh, we had no control over the party organisations running of the campaign, but um, I know a lot of our team were out there selling fight back flat out, irrespective of the resistance they were getting. And um, you know, I think it was a pretty good effort on everyone's part. But in the end, we didn't make it. And you know, yeah, sure, you have to win to be in government. But um, if if I'd had to compromise to pull back and say, look, okay, as Hawke said to me, <laughs> we did a couple of functions after the after he left politics, I left politics, and he got up at one of them, at several of them, and said, oh, this bloke, he should have listened to me. I told him, put that stuff in the bottom drawer and pull it out after you get elected. And uh, he said, if you'd only listened to me, we would never have had John Howard as Prime Minister. <laughs> and he used to trade on that all the time. It was, you know, and it was probably true. Um, but uh, I just didn't feel that it was... You know, I thought it was worth challenging people to think about these issues. And it's even much more important today mm. to see the nonsense we're hearing from the government in a very reckless fashion about climate 
when it's going to be the defining issue of the next several decades is staggering to me. Mm. That, that shows you how far we've slipped. Because on climate, we had a policy in the late 80s, early 90s of a 20% cut in emissions in that decade by the year 2000 of a 1990 base, which was possible, you know, price and carbon as the mechanism. We would have really been way in front of the debate. You know, I think now if you'd just done that 20% each decade for the last three decades, we'd be at less than half our Paris commitments already. <laughs> it's just we've blown opportunities, and that translates to you know billions and billions of dollars of investment and growth, and hundreds of thousands of jobs that have just been lost. Mm. Uh, but you know that's not an argument that they they want to hear. You mentioned that <clears throat> politics has become more careerist and more short-termist, mm. less interested in policy, and. The obvious objection to that claim is just to say it's all nostalgia and that every generation somehow looks back on a foregone time and says that politics was somehow nobler back then and today we've kind of lost those values. So can you, can you try and quantify that claim for me? Well, I mean, there's no doubt that the sort of people that are attracted to politics these days are very different to the ones that used to be attracted. Remember I did a radio program regularly with... Um, John Button, uh, Philip Adams was the camp pro program. And um, we were talking one night before that, and Button said to me, you know, I don't know what happened. He said, we used to have people coming into politics towards the end of a career, whatever it had been, with a sole purpose, end game, to make a contribution, to give something back. And he said, look at it today. <laughs> you know, that was, <laughs> that was a couple of decades ago. Um, and, you know, the sort of people that you attract, the sort of games you've got to play, everything from branch stacking and, and it's tying up to the allegiance of particular factions within parties or whatever it is, to get pre-selected undermines the, the uh, capacity of those people to ever be effective in government. Some of them come through, some of them are okay, but when they've never had a real job and they've only ever worked in the political process in the local government or in a union or in a minister's office or in a... Uh, you know, in, in the party organisation or, uh, you know, in a marketing group around politics or whatever. And then suddenly they're, you know, they get pre-selected, all right, they play that game. But those skills that you need to do that are not necessarily skills that are going to help you run a multi-billion dollar department. And we see it time and time again now in some of the unbelievable excesses that have been approved by these people in particular departments. I mean, you could say at Dutton right now, he, he was looking to get out of home affairs because the Auditor General was progressively finding unbelievable excesses. And so he go to defence where they pride themselves on unbelievable excesses in terms of, you know, submarine contracts and so on. Um, yeah, but there's, there's an element there that, you know, if you had an objective assessment, if you advertised for the Minister for Defence and Dutton applied, you wouldn't appoint him. <laughs> or home affairs. And not just Dutton, he's using him as an example. You can go through a lot of them and they don't they would really have never qualified on merit for the jobs they end up doing. And, you know, you see that over time, look, a lot of the time they rely on the public service, they just drift along, and then suddenly you get a big issue, <laughs> and they're not ready for it. They get caught short because they don't have the processes, they don't have the people. And that's a very significant shift in the nature of politics. And, mm. you know, I'd never, to be honest, I'd never thought of politics as a game. I, I, and that's why, as leader of the opposition, I took a very different view, and I had a fair bit of pushback initially in the, in the opposition for doing it. But I said that as an opposition, we have two functions. 
One function is obviously to disagree with the government, to hold them to account. And we do that as strongly as we can on the evidence, right? It has to be evidence-based criticism. So we can defend our position against whatever they've done to create their, their policy position. But the other thing is that we have a responsibility to take a national view beyond the parties and what, what's in the national interest. And um, this, this was a, something I firmly believe. I said it in my pre-selection. I said, OK, I might be a member of the Liberal Party, but I'm also an Australian. So I'm an Australian first, member of the Liberal Party second. So if there's a choice here, or if I think the Liberal Party's on the wrong track, I'm going to work hard to change that policy. And, uh, and so if you are playing a constructive role as opposition, you can get out in front of the government, you can call on the government to do things which you know they're going to have to do anyway. Mm. And so we did that in so many areas. I mean, obviously, in the financial sector, deregulation and reform of the financial sector, we'd done all that work in the Fraser government and was ready to go. All the cabinet documents were sitting there. Uh, you know, and I, I wrote something pretty much straight after the 83 election when everyone's saying, oh, these bastards won't licence foreign banks and they won't, you know, they won't float the currency and they won't... I said, they will. Definitely they will. Even though, at those days, Hawke won on a policy platform, ALP platform, had bank nationalisation in the platform. I said, it doesn't matter. And um, you know, I started working with Hill Samuel to demonstrate that they could get a banking licence not as a foreign bank, but uh, as a domestic, newbie domestic bank. So we started Macquarie Bank. But, and I advised a whole lot of institutions through that period. But it was inevitable they were going to do that because all the hard yards had been done. We tried so many times to defend the currency, you know, and early days where you'd go into the cabinet. I sit, spent a lot of time in cabinet, particularly the Monetary Policy Committee of Cabinet, which we sat in almost daily. And, you know, we have a rush on the currency, right? And so we have people sitting around a table. We have no market for the currency. We don't know what the $8 is actually worth. don't know how it would really trade against the US dollar or you know, the euro or whatever. But we have these you know, people sitting around the Monetary Policy Committee of Cabinet making the decision. And I used to sort of laugh with one of Fraser's advisors, John Rose, that we don't have much hope here because of the seven members of that committee, four of them are farmers. Right. So they're never going to think it's a great idea to put interest rates up. Or, you know, they're never going to be, think it's a great idea to float the currency. You know, they like to set it where they want it. Mm. And um, it didn't really matter because of those four, they dominated that. The other three was the Treasurer and the Finance Minister, which is views. They will put their views, but they didn't count because they were going to be... And so you know, you'd have them make a decision, a political decision. Oh, well, we've got to respond. The currency's under pressure. we better move it. Where to? Oh, well, let's, you know, move it. There's a classic story told about uh, the 76 devaluation where Fraser was nervous. Obviously, you'd had a couple of these attempts to reset the currency and they hadn't worked. You know, and We'd had a major exchange rate crisis a couple of times. The money was flooding out of the country again. So he sort of said, um, and the Treasury put, the Treasury didn't want to do anything. They didn't, never, never wanted to float, you know, never wanted to devalue. They wanted to say, you've got to tighten fiscal policy. You know, they'd always have that. In those days, Treasury used to put up two options to the government. One they wanted, which happened to have been referred to in an editorial in the Financial Review that morning, by coincidence, and the other one was you to be insane to contemplate. So they were driving the debate. And in this case, in 76, they just had to, they had to agree that, you know, it was so bad, well, we are going to have to devalue, but only if you do all these other things, right? So Fraser said to them, OK, 7.5% is your, your recommendation. Will that stop the capital outflow? 
well, you know, talking amongst themselves. They weren't sure. Reserve Bank in the room as well, weren't sure. What about 10%? No, still weren't sure. What about 12.5%? Still weren't sure. Bottom line, a oh, bit of discussion. What about 17.5%? Oh, shit, that'll stop it. Fine, it's 17.5%. <laughs> That's exactly how that decision was taken. Wow. And I put a proposal into Lynch to say, if you devalue, start something else, right? Don't go back to a fixed exchange rate. Start moving the exchange rate. Have the Reserve Bank, it announces the exchange rate every morning, right? Instead of announcing the same rate, announce a different one. Let's move it up a bit, down a bit, against the TWI. No particular trend, just get people used to the fact that the price moves. Mm. And uh, so we got that through that cabinet meeting. Lynch said, see, I told you you've got to be in place. I turned down my job with Lynch. So I had a very long interview with him and Ainsley Jolly and so on. And he said, I want you to be economic advisor, come out of the Reserve Bank on Sakomba, and I've spoken to the governor. And I said, well, no. And he said, why? I said, because I didn't spend nine years at university getting four economics degrees to waste it on a bloody politician. He said to me, you know, you're going to have to learn something. He said, that room, the cabinet room, is where these decisions get taken. Unless I win the argument in there, it doesn't happen. You can write all these wonderful papers, which I know you've been writing in the, in the Reserve Bank. I never actually see them. Ainsley might slip them to me, but Treasury never bring them forward. The Reserve Bank's never heard independently of the Treasury. You know, all that good work about floating currencies and all that sort of stuff, I'm never going to hear it. So he said, I want, you, I want to make the point to you. So he said, here's my desk, here's a piece of paper, here's a pen. You write me a cabinet submission that says that we should start managing the exchange rate with this, with this devaluation, which was inevitable. And uh, it has to be on one page, because everything Phil had was on one page. I used to laugh at Treasury trying to reduce hundreds of pages submissions <laughs> to one page. Sometimes they come back with two pages and he'd simply told her, I want one page, you know. But uh, it was a way of forcing them to actually crystallise their arguments, which I thought, you know, given some obvious downside, it was effective from his point of view. So I wrote the one page and went in and they made that decision. And uh, we started to manage it. And then there was a whole, we finally got Campbell up and the big review and the recommendations were so significant that they were going to have to do it. Mm. And um, I remember when we gave the F Campbell committee review, the, the reports, and all the, the, Campbell we'd set up as a fiercely independent body, not run by Treasury, no secretariat from Treasury, you know, had to be independent. And, Keith Campbell was a known, very strong, independent thinker in the finance sector. Had done some pretty tough turnarounds and hookers and so on, you know. He knew his stuff and there was no way they were going to influence him. We just made sure that it was funded properly so that they could go around the world and get the best opinions and the best research, commissioned the best research, um, that there was no political influence at all. There's no way Howard could ring them up or Fraser could ring them up and try and influence their outcomes. So got a very substantial report and all the accompanying uh, professional supportive statements, which was a huge, you know, not the least length of this table of reports put on Fraser's desk. And uh, we're standing there saying, well, Prime Minister, here it is. <laughs> One of his staff had put a piece of paper on top of the, the thing. He said, Prime Minister, do you realise, if you read uh, supplementary paper number, whatever, footnote two or something, it says that if you deregulate housing interest rates, they'll go up by 2.5%. Fraser said, well, I'm not having that. And he just put his arm and swept this to the bin at the end of the table. <laughs> Credit card just, swipe. Yeah, the whole lot. <laughs> and I said, well, Prime Minister, you can't do that. Why can't I do that? I'm Prime Minister. You know, and of course, um, I said, because there's a massive expectation out there that you are actually going to reform this place. 
And we can't stay with, you know, politically determined interest rates and exchange rates, we'd, even though we'd been moving the process of those Treasury bonds and notes to be more tender-based and not just... You know, they used to sit there and, I don't know, make a decision about what the interest rate ought to be. So a couple of times we let them go with an interest rate we thought wouldn't raise any money, and when it didn't, they said, what do we do? I said, why don't you try tender? You know, why don't you try and see what people will pay for that debt? And, um, you know, so anyway, the point was as background, when, you, when Hawke came in, Keating came in, it was inevitable that they were going to have to do that. And when he swept that off into the, the bin, he said to me, so, okay, what do I do? I can't go out there and defend this. I, you know, what am I going to do? And I said, why don't we get a task force of key people, uh, one Treasury, one Reserve Bank, John Rose, your advisor, and myself, and we'll work through that document, break it into bite-sized chunks, and Cabinet can start the process of deciding. So, you know, they did that and we moved quite a long way in terms of market-determined rates for government bonds and notes. Howard, in the early part of 83, announced the licensing of four to six foreign banks. You know, we moved. So when the Orton Keating came in, it was inevitable that, you know, as soon as there was pressure on the exchange rate, they'd have to float. And, uh, you know, the, all these big global banks had spent a fortune trying to position themselves uh, for the for the inevitable, um, you know, deregulation of the financial system, including licensing them. And of course, the, the Australian banks were a rearguard action immediately. Oh, yes, we understand the merit of more competition, but let us have a couple of years to adjust to being deregulated before you let them in. So we managed to convince everybody that was nonsense and, that, you know, that should all happen pretty much at once. But our thinking behind all of that was that that's fine, you'd actually deregulate, you get the politics out of interest rates and exchange rates, and ultimately the Reserve Bank would become an independent entity overseeing that. But it was also mean that you couldn't continue with, with, uh, with um, centralised wage determination. You'd have to start more looking at the circumstances in particular companies, particular industries and so on. You wouldn't be able to stick with high levels of tariff protection because all these these extres extremes would would show up over time in terms of movement in exchange rate, mm. movements in interest rates. You suddenly have to pay a lot more for your debt. You have to, you know, there'd be less confidence in the currency. So it was inevitable that having started that process, then they'd have to deregulate wages, determination process. They'd have to cut tariff protection, and they'd have to they'd have to do a lot of micro reform to make the system work to get the productivity up. And so all through the 80s into the 90s, the opposition didn't disagree with any of it. We drove it to happen. So we talk about, you know, Hawke did the accord, good start, we're going to have to go to enterprise bargaining. Um, tariff protection, I, Keating used to call me Captain Zero because I said over time we've got to go to zero tariffs. And how difficult is that going to be? And I was very conscious of how difficult that was in the Liberal Party to say that because there were those guys in the textile, clothing and footwear industry that felt they owned the party. And I'd seen them threaten Fraser to... You don't give us more protection, we'll, you know, pull our money and this sort of stuff. And uh, but it was inevitable. The process was inevitable. And so all through that process, we could get out in front, call on them to do it, make it easy for them to do it. And so you know, they didn't get any criticism. Very different world to today, where or Abbott's world, where you just disagreed with everything, no to everything. You know, um, and that's one of the big changes that's happened in politics in Australia. That we don't have the opposition being taking the risk of being constructive. You know, and I called on Hawke, for example, to, to make a commitment to the first Gulf War. And um, yeah, I remember getting caught in a press conference. They said, well, so what would you do? <laughs> you know, you put troops on the ground? What are you going to do? I said, I think probably we'd start by putting a couple of ships as part of the US Armada off the coast. 
And the next day I had a briefing from the Navy and they came in and said, great stuff, congratulations. That's just the sort of stuff we want to hear. And thank God you said two ships because we've only got two ships <laughs> that are consistent with the, with the US communications system yeah. structures and so on. But, you know, you, it made it easy for Hawke to say yes. Where we disagreed, like with um, the sponsor Tiananmen Square, supported them very heavily on those Chinese that were in Australia, giving them special visa status to continue, students predominantly, but others. Mm. But then he wanted to close the embassy in Beijing and he wanted to, you know, break our diplomatic ties and I said, no. So I led a major delegation to Beijing, didn't, didn't make it a media event, unlike today where everything's done for the media, we just went and had meetings with Jiang Zemin and Li Peng, the senior people and senior ministers for about three days in Beijing, arguing that, look, the relationship's important and, and it will develop, you know, it'll develop in a lot of ways in terms of trade and investment, we were developing immigration and tourism and you know, so on, cultural exchanges, universities, and this sort of thing. But the world's not going to accept China's you know, lack of human rights. If you want to actually, in time, join the World Trade Organization, or you want to, you want to um, you know, get more influence in the IMF, all these things that they had on their agenda, then you're going to have to be seen to be meeting, at least attempting to meet, Western standards of human rights. And I got no pushback. We had a very positive discussion. The only pushback in the end was they invited me, they were doing the first major sporting event that the Chinese had ever hosted in Beijing. It was the Asian Games. And they asked me, because I was the first Western leader to go there, post Tiananmen Square, nobody would touch them. And I was asked whether I'd be guest of honour, that, you know, stand up with all the fanfare. And I said, no, I didn't come here for propaganda. I came here to make a point. And so the last banquet was fairly brief, you know, 13 courses in 12 minutes, sort of. You know. <laughs> but, we, but the reaction was very positive and constructive. And when I look at where we are today, where minister can't pick up the phone and talk to their counterpart, mm. we've slid a bloody long way. Mm. And it's cost us enormously. And it may end up costing us quite a lot because you know, one of the things we don't do in our Chinese relationship is pay any attention to what they're on about. Mm. You know, you've got to understand the Chinese before you can negotiate with them. That was part of the point of, I was making in, in 1990. But their strategy now under the new plans is to actually become self-sufficient. And in so many areas, they're accelerating that process. Now, you don't hear that said here, but it means that over time, they won't need our iron ore. They, you know, they're sure right now they haven't got too many alternatives, but they are developing alternatives. And they are also stockpiling and they're also cu cutting back on steel demand. And, you know, like there's a lot of transitional stuff going on. So in a few years' time, don't be surprised if the iron ore price isn't 230. <laughs> mm. It's under 100 bucks, and um, you know if we're complacent through that process, we'll pay a price. And of course, all the th the smaller things, whether it's wine or lobsters or you know, whatever, of course they can just say we don't want them. They don't need to have them from us. Um, and um, so we've drifted into a very bad position. But the point I was making is, you can be constructive as an opposition to get out in front. OK, there's a political risk. There's always a political risk. Open your mouth, there's a political risk. Step out of the door, there's a political risk. But the bottom line is, if you are being constructive in the national interest, you'll carry the day eventually. So in so many areas, we made it easy for the Hawke-Keating government. Too easy, in a way. I used to point out that if Keating did put interest rates up faster, you know, it'd end up with them at some ridiculous level and give us the biggest recession we'd ever had. 
And then he immediately twisted that to say this is the recession we didn't need to have, you know. Uh, <laughs> but of course it was in, it was in the offing. And, and you know, and I, having come out of the Reserve Bank, that pressure between him and the Reserve Bank was phenomenal. Mm. He put Bernie Fraser from Treasury in there to take the governor's poll. He, John Phillips, who had been a, a very effective deputy governor, who I'd worked for when I was in the Reserve Bank, he burnt him. You know, uh, it was terrible stuff. Be all because they were arguing, you, you're creating a monster here. You're going to send this country into really deep recession. Mm. And, of course, he did. When interest rates, when people forget, mortgage interest rates at about 18.5% or something, yeah. Yeah, compared to where they are today. I mean, that's a very different world. But they got away with that. Um, no, I think, basically, they created enough doubt about me. And you know, One of the problems with being in politics as a leader is that you have to get known. And you never really feel that you're known. I mean, Kim Beasley came very close, but he really wasn't known. You know, the average person out there doesn't pay a lot of attention to politics. I mean, in the bubble in Canberra, of course, it's all terribly stuff, you know, very finite sort of competition. But more broadly, people are too worried getting on with their own lives, and more so now than it was then. But, um, you know, so to get known, to be seen to be standing for something, believing in something, prepared to fight for something, is very difficult in politics. And mm. in our world, where, you know, elbow's not game. You know, right now, he, he's still doing this bit about small target. We're not going to do anything we took to the last election, even though there's a reasonable debate that uh, I think a reasonable point, and it came out in the review of the election lost by Craig Emerson and Jay Weatherill. Basically, their main issue, not written in these terms, was Shorten. He was never net positive in his, his election standing. He, to the extent he was known, they didn't like him. Mm. They didn't trust him. So, you know, Morrison could actually swan in against that. Um, and, um, but, you know, the response of the Labor Party has been, oh, we'll ditch the tax changes and we'll ditch the climate stuff and we'll ditch... Well, suddenly the electorate says, well, you know, you're just like they are. They're not doing anything. You're not going to do anything. And it's sort of, uh, I think, probably a world where you'll see more independent standing and maybe successful. Mm. Have you heard of Peter Turchin? Peter? Turchin? No. He's a Russian-American evolutionary biologist whose work fascinates me. He went from evolutionary biology into kind of creating a new field which he calls clear dynamics. Cleo after the Greek god of history, dynamics not changes through time. No, no, yeah, yeah, <laughs> clear with an eye, not an E. And, um, <laughs> and he's, he's applying mathematics to history to look at cycles mm. and with... Jack Goldstone, who's the father of structural demographic theory, came on the podcast earlier in the year. They've looked at spikes in socio-political violence through history. Yeah. And they, back in 2010, Turchin predicted in a Nature article that there'd be a big spike in the US in 2020. Now, whether he actually predicted that or he's just lucky is sort of a, a separate question. But his theory fascinates me because he looks at the increase in polarization and political infighting in the United States mm. and concludes that it's a result of what he calls elite overproduction. Mm. So because of rising inequality since the 70s, you've got more people entering the elite or more elite aspirants. Mm. And he kind of gauges that by looking at the number of law degrees or MBAs mm. that universities are churning out. Mm. And with an increase in demand for elite positions, there's been a fixed supply of those positions. So like, you know, the number of seats in the House of Reps or in the Senate doesn't change. 
Um, usually the number of judges on courts is fixed. Mm. So you've got an increasing amount of elites vying for a fixed number of positions in society and that intensifies intra-elite competition and then he kind of also measures intra-elite competition with a number of proxies like looking at the increase in filibusters in congress and Mm. things like that Mm. but um i guess what i'm one of the reasons i was fascinated to speak with you john is I'd, i'd love to kind of explore what you see as some of the ultimate causes for this increase in short termism careerism and and um partisanship in politics because for me, I think that's quite an interesting, useful theory, that idea of elite overproduction. But I wonder what you make of it and if you think yeah, there are any other explanations. It's very pronounced, I'm sure, in the United States compared to Australia, but I wouldn't say that it's not a feature of what's happening here. Yeah. Um, you know, it, there are a lot of points you can make. I mean, one of the points that's relevant today is this small target, big target stuff. And people basically go back to say Houston was a big target, dumb policy, lost the election. So don't let's take that risk. And you've seen that all the way through, and Howard certainly worked on that. Howard capitalised on issues as they broke, but he didn't take big policy positions. The only one where he finally did say something, which was sort of tagged as work choices, he didn't understand it, so he got it wrong and um, never understood our industrial relations policy, uh, which, although he was Shadow Minister of Industrial Relations, didn't understand it. And... Um, the essence of that policy was we had a condition, we had a legal structure of legal support, you know, free, free um, legal advice, um, co- separate court uh, for, for the employee advocate, um, basically guaranteeing that what you've got you'll keep was our line. You can never be worse off in an industrial relations negotiation. And if you've got a complex wage structure with all sorts of add-ons and penalty rates and so on, reduce that to an average hourly rate that's your base, and that can only ever be improved by negotiation. Mm. And he left that out. So it was pretty easy to say, you know, that no disadvantage test is at school today. But leaving that out meant that you could run a work choices. You're attacking workers' rights, you know. But, um, and that, but so the big target stuff, is, is to a large extent, goes back to fight back. Oh, you don't want to be like that. And that is an element of, of what's, what's happened, I think. Um, and then, you know, it's a question of the end game. And the end game, to me, was not just winning. It was winning to do something, you know, winning to make a difference. And today, uh, you ask most of the average voter, average punter, you know, politicians in there to make a difference. They say, yeah, for themselves. Mm. You know, snouts in the trough, uh, cheating on their expenses, whatever. And, um, you know, allocating money to key marginal seats to buy votes, which probably don't work anyway. You know, this sort of stuff. Um, so that's uh, the end game has shifted to be just political winning at, at all costs. And it doesn't matter what you sacrifice in order to get there and um, what deals you have to do to get there. There's not so much scrutiny. And where there should be scrutiny, like with the Auditor General, you cut his budget, uh, the independent uh, anti-corruption, um, anti, um, um, well, integrity and anti-corruption commission, uh, you draft something that is just a protection racket for the for, for ministers and their staff and just doesn't, doesn't do it. This is a drift that's very significant, mm. but it's all elements of the end game becoming just winning. So, and and it's, 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 it's very sad because people really stu- do now start to see that there is no understanding of the national interest. And, you know, we, we go and lecture the Chinese about, oh, we're fighting for our principles and values. And they say, yeah, but you're circumventing a lot of those in global trade. And, you know, you don't, 
it's, it's not real. Mm. And uh, we say it's our national interest. Well, it's not really. Um, we haven't got a very clear idea of our national interest. The same as right now, there's an interesting debate as to how we should redefine or whether we should redefine national security. You ask the defence guys, the national security risk is that we'll be invaded. Mm -hmm. And we need to have the military capability to respond to that, which is a very low risk compared to, say, climate, which is going to do us irreparable damage as a nation if we don't get on with it. And these, these debates are, are very hard for the end game mentality to deal with because they don't want to take a risk and have to open up those sort of issues. Yet, you know, as long as you drift, I mean, you get, we've got a much more bullshit Chinese response than anyone ever imagined you'd get. And Morrison made a statement yesterday and the Chinese now responded today. And also Maurice Payne made a statement. Uh, you know, and the Chinese say, keep out of our industrial, our, 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 um, our um, uh, judicial processes and so on. And, you know, but we don't make any attempt to understand that. I, I've built businesses in China, right? We built one that built luxury buses and coaches in Qingdao. It was a very sophisticated technology. Australia makes the best buses and coaches, and they were gas-fired in those days. They were really very... So we did a joint venture. I did a joint venture with a big state-owned government enterprise. A China heavy-duty truck, China special truck was the enterprise. A 50-50 joint venture built the plant near Qingdao and, uh, you know, it was a world-class plant with the application of our world-class technology. And on the first day, in the first board meeting, the Chinese uh, counterpart, we had sort of divided uh, board responsibilities, turned up with a letter from the government which said, um, we have terminated your land use rights. This can no longer be a factory, a plant. This has to be reserved for residential development. Mm. I went to the highest levels in Beijing trying to get that overturned and I was told quite flatly, look, you can take it to court if you want to, but our courts enforce government policy and the government policy is to take your land. So good luck. <laughs> you know? Now that mentality is what they actually operate with. And you know, there's no attempt to understand that when you start to lecture them. Um, I'm not saying you give in and I'm not saying you don't defend somebody who's being badly treated, but you do it in a way that shows a, an understanding and a respect for what they're trying to do from their system. But having said that, you know, we'll never be communists. We don't want to be communists. We don't want that. And we make those points quite clearly, and that's where our values start to differ. But you don't see that in that debate. They're just, just sort of slagging off at each other now, which is not going to achieve anything. And... Um, it hardens the arteries, I think, on the Chinese side. Well, bugger it, we'll just show you, you know, we'll work to show you how our system works. Mm. So, I mean, these are big issues and they're elements of what you're talking about. Uh, in terms of elites, you know, there's, we have a system that does protect some of those elites and encourage those elites, and we have an education system that produces too many of them. You know, there's always a feeling that a good lawyer should go into politics because that's where you make the laws. Not necessarily the right way to get a good law, <laughs> but um, you know we're producing multiples of, of, of law graduates compared to the number of available jobs. I spoke at a law reform thing in Queensland a couple of years ago, and I took out the numbers. That year, they were going to produce sixty thousand graduates for twelve thousand solicitors' jobs. Yeah, you know, I, the I system doesn't at, adjust, right? Yeah, I looked at those numbers myself and, recently. And when you think about, it, and that's not just there. I mean, yeah. we did in the finance sector, we've seen it in so many other sectors. So there's these big mismatches we build into the system, but they are favouring your elites. Yeah. 
you know, and, and lawyers that get to the top are, see themselves as in a privileged position. And uh, it is all about privilege. It's in game, but it's also about privilege. And um, so you want to be a member of parliament, why? Or oh, represent the interests of my elected, but you don't. You know, the extent to which they don't listen to their electorates is now staggering. The best example of that to me was the National Party in the same-sex marriage vote, where they were very confident they had most of their seats had vote no. And 15 of 16 seats voted yes, mm. and some of them quite decisively. Didn't understand the first thing about their electorate, and that's been reflected, of course, the lack of regional policies, the lack of... But it's building... They, they see themselves as an elite. They're members of the political elite, um, and uh, they do everything they can to get there and to protect that, but not in the interests of their constituency. So there are a lot of elements, I think, that... Um, mm that you see in that. I know, you know, the breakdown of democratic processes in the US is a pretty big one. I mean, Trump complains about the election being stolen. Well, he stole the first one. I think he's just pissed off that it didn't work the second time, you know. He really did spend all his time in the last couple of years suppressing votes, making it difficult for people to vote, particularly the low to, you know, the disadvantaged and low income groups. A lot of um, black and Hispanic. He made it very difficult, you know, shifting polling booths and closing down their capacity to get to a, uh, to lodge a vote. Um, taking over the mail system so that votes that were passed through the mail never actually got counted, you know, because he had his appointment. So these are big issues that show the extent to which, you know, somebody in power, in the US it's been more, it's easier to do than perhaps in Australia, but we don't handle Australia Post very well at all. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it, there are all elements of what is a way of confirming the status of particular groups in society at the expense of others. And uh, when you then persist with tax systems that discriminate as much as ours does uh, and, um, you know, begrudgingly offer some support to low to middle income earners, uh, but nothing like the support that's being offered to high income earners or particular industries, as you've seen in COVID. I mean, to have left universities out of JobKeeper, when you put the Catholic Church in, so all the priests and nuns are getting JobKeeper, didn't make any sense. And, and, and universities are a major sector, major employer, major exporter. Um, it's but vindictive. But attacked because they're seen as an elite. I mean, if you talk to the ministers in Canberra, they'll tell you that it's all based on Morrison's personal prejudice. He thinks universities are fat and ugly, which they mostly are. They've built big bureaucracies, that the vice-chancellors pay themselves too much money. That's mm. true. Um, and um, that the big thing is that they're a breeding ground for left-wing radicals that are going to attack his government. I spent a lot of time at university. I, I have fi some trouble finding a left-wing radical these days compared to, say, the 60s. Um, you know, it's just... It's just nonsense. Yet the cost, in the long-term cost of that elitist attitude is enormous in terms of higher education. We're going to lose a lot of good people. We have lost a lot of good people. We're going to don't fund universities, don't fund research. Yet there is an opportunity, and we've tried to put these arguments into the system. What about an income-dependent loan like a HEC scheme for universities? Lend them the money now on the condition they do restructure, they do cut their bureaucracies, they do refocus their activities on excellence and, and so on. <clears throat> um, and, and, when, and as their revenue recovers, as the foreign students come back or more domestic students come, as the revenue recovers, you pay back. You know, automatically, they have to pay back. So over time, it's just moved them through a process which needed reform. Uh, 
But you know, that has never been done. And coming into the, uh, the uh, you remember Rudd had an education revolution. There was a uh, big report done on the, at the time, uh, the Bradley Review of the Higher Education. Something like 13 of the then 38 universities were seen as financially non-viable. Nothing was ever done. Nobody tried to merge. Nobody, we had too many universities for the size of the population and they're all fat and ugly in terms of uh, Morrison's position. That compounds a problem. It's an anti-elite position. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, academics can get pretty... I mean, I'm fascinated how many people have solved all the world problems in academia, but they've never had a real job and never worked outside the, the, the test tube or the, the mathematical model, mm. which um, gives them those conclusions. So, in a nutshell, the number of politicians who view their positions as a prize rather than a responsibility has increased. Yeah, absolutely. Could we view that as the logical endpoint or the political version of the sort of rugged individualism promoted by right-of-centre parties during the 70s and the 80s? Um, it's a big stretch, I think. I mean, um, you know, the Liberal Party would say that it's defining principles, um, none of which seem to apply anymore, but individual, the power of the individual, the focus on the individual, the responsibilities of the individual... Uh, the basis of society in, in terms of their family structures and so on. Secondly, that they believe in small government, um, they believe in low levels of regulation, believe in market forces where they can. None of those elements apply. They ignore all of that. Just their position on climate ditches the lot of that. Um, they prefer to try and bully energy companies into holding prices down than to put in place a system that will give you lower prices. Indeed, you go and build a gas fire price power state, you put prices up, not down. I mean, these are, there's no consistency with their positions at all. So uh, where there was a successful focus on individual initiative and, uh, and contribution and responsibility and so on, that's all been lost in terms of the way they think. So I think it's a stretch to go back and say, oh, this is some version of that re-emerging. I mean, I think um, it's more likely that they are in it for their own benefit. You know, as I said before, ask the average punter, as Howard would say, go to the pub test, what are these blokes in politics for? They're looking after themselves. They say they want to make a difference. It's to themselves. It's not to us. Nobody's taking a position that may be difficult politically to take, but in the, clearly in the national interest. Uh, yeah, okay, you can handle the coal industry, for example, in climate very easily. Not a lot of people are employed in coal. Right? And you can transition the individuals and communities over time. And you have a pretty clear pathway as to how these coal-fired power stations will have to close. And so you should be planning to, to, um, to transition them, but they close northern in South Australia without any transition strategy at all. They closed Hazelwood and Victoria without any transit. They just left those communities short about five or 600 jobs, whatever it was, you know. That is staggering. Mm. And yet, if you go to the unions and you work with the unions, you, you, will, um, you will get, I think, a lot of cooperation for retraining, relocation, you know, community assistance and so on. You can put together a package that facilitates that process, but they don't want to try that, as that might, you know, by election today, that might disrupt... You know, somebody should stand up and say, look, we're not against unions. But there's this stupid idea that is perpetrated, per perpetuated, I should say, in government that, you know, we still work with the old sense of a coal miner, you know, a bloke with a shovel and a, hat and a helmet and he goes down and digs the coal out. 
the whole thing's automated these days. You can go to places in Western Australia or Sydney and uh, in the head headquarters of the big mining companies and see them run the Pilbara on, on a laptop. The trucks are automated, the, you know, the, 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 the equipment's automated. So we have had this very false argument about what, we're, what are we doing here? And the cost of that to the nation as a major exporter of coal as well as a major user of coal is enormous cost if you take a you know, two or three decade view. So there's no attempt to deal with those sort of issues in a way that shows that you understand individuals and what they need, what sort of support they need. And you know, this budget just throws a lot of money, as I mentioned, in these social, social areas, of, you know, childcare, um, aged care, mental illness, dis national disability insurance scheme, throwing lots of money in it, tens of billions of dollars, but no reform. <laughs> you know, the childcare thing is just an extension of the old system, which we know disadvantages women, families, you know, um, and productivity. Uh, the aged care system, there's a lot of recommendations there in the Royal Commission that are ignored. Big one being, you know, not only train these people better, but pay them more so that you actually make it, uh, you know, an incentive to, to be an aged care worker, or to be a 24-hour-a-day nurse. Um, and um, no reform, consistent with the recommendations of the Royal Commission. NDIS is just running out of control. Mental illness, <clears throat> throw some money at it, you're not solving the problem. You listen to Macquarie and these people, they'll tell you you're not solving the problem. And, um, but the answer from the government's political point of view is I've got a checklist of things we have to do in this budget. You have to deal with these issues, you have to deal with these constituents, you have to worry about these seats and so on. Since some staff member there ticks the box, yeah, you know, the budget does this, the budget does that. And you look at the way they explain it, the way they sell it, that's all they're doing. It's totally political. It's got nothing to do with what's in the best interest of a sensible aged care system. And I'm annoyed with the aged care reform because back in the middle 90s, I was the director of a major healthcare group and we were putting arguments into the Howard government about what was going to happen if you actually persist with this. So he brings in an aged care act in 97, which is just staggering in uh, the, ignoring the substance of the issues that were mounting and 20 reports later, we get the Royal Commission report, which says just how bad things are. We call the first version of that neglect. That's exactly what it is. But I remember, you know, we did a lot of advisory work uh, with, say, Salvation Army at the time uh, who wanted to shed some of their nursing homes, which cost them a lot of money. And so they put them out to tender on our advice. And they called people to put in a range of bids. And, you know, we bid... Oh, range, I forget, don't quote it, but 35 to 85 million dollars for the 10 homes. And um, knowing full well that they weren't worth a penny over 35, but we had met the requirements of the tender. And some of these banks came in and paid 124 million for them without any. Okay, so what's going to happen when, a, when an institution that knows nothing about aged care, except putting it into a, into a fund and uh, taking a couple of fees on the way into that fund? Uh, and, and in managing that fund. What's going to happen when they realise that they actually have to service $124 million? So they cut the quality of the service, they cut the nursing care, they cut... That's what happened. And that was all back to the 97 Age Care Act. And so you see so many examples of that happening. Today we've got issues in front of the government. Well, both sides just passed a piece of legislation that makes it possible for, for property developer donations, which states are basically outlawed, to go federally and be handed back to the states. And both sides voted for that. 
Um, you've got Taylor in a couple of pieces of legislation right now in the arena. He announced as arena can look at gas projects. And he did that by regulation, inconsistent with the Act, which says they can't do that. They've got to focus on renewables. If he gets caught, he'll change the Act over time. He doesn't want the political debate. So we, we, we do it by regulation. And there are elements of what they're doing now. They're just doing more by regulation, less by legislation. It's all confirming this process. Mm. And um, it's, it's, um, none of that is in the national interest. It might, might make them feel better and, you know, that they've ticked a box in returns of the coal sector or fossil fuels or paid off to one of their mates in the gas industry, but none of it's in the national interest. In 1976, you published a paper with Jörg Nairns where you looked at two paradigms in theories of money supply, mm. and you began rather philosophically by discussing Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions. And I wanted to ask you, what's, what's the biggest paradigm shift you've seen in economics during your lifetime? Uh, it's a good question because I think right now one of the things that strikes me is how so many of the relationships that we sort of took for granted mm. don't apply. Yeah. Don't apply to the same extent. You know, flooding the world with liquidity would have had the expectation of hyperinflation. People would draw attention to what happened in Germany, what happened in Brazil a couple of occasions. Yeah. And, um, you know, to shift away from that because the relationship has broken down. It's not clear how it's broken down because we've got massive central bank holdings of debt keeping interest rates at low and you know, negative interest rates. One of my friends at the university, when we were all building macro models of the world, solving all the world's problems, uh, built a model that implied negative interest rates for a period. And um, we had the best monetary macroeconomists, econometricians in, in the world at that university, and they threw out the thesis on the basis that that sort of concept was, you know, <laughs> inconceivable. <laughs> Outside uh, of the paradigm. Yeah, well, you yeah. know, well, what's that, what have you got? We've got long-term interest rates in the German you know, 10 years uh, negative and have been for a number of years. And, um, you know, people paying governments to take their money. <laughs> you know, it, if you think about it, it doesn't, you know, say it easily like that, people wouldn't think that that could be true, but it is true. And quantitative easing and so on has driven that. So the shift from the old simple monetarist Keynesian view at... You know, you worry about a, a point movement in the, <laughs> the money supply number and you, you know, worry about the inflationary consequences. That seems to be long gone. In fact, here's the Reserve Bank out there now campaigning to increase cost base, wages, <laughs> and, and inflation to get into some sort of notional target, uh, which, um, which they, they um, you know, will then feel that they go back to more, in quotes, normal monetary policy. I've got no idea. I mean, I can remember the Reserve Bank. I criticised them uh, a while back um, because they were just so obsessed with, with, with the possibility of inflation. You know, coming out, even coming out of the GFC, they were worried that putting liquidity into the system, even though it was excess liquidity that created the GFC, you know, the world chasing debt and creating all sorts, chasing yield, I should say, and creating all sorts of debt instruments like collateralised debt obligations and credit default swaps and so on, a mountain of debt, all basically based on a pump uh, that uh, US house prices keep going up and subprime loans would hold. When that base collapsed and they'd all been securitised into these instruments, the whole lot collapsed. And, um, you know, they, they, uh, they looked at that and, and uh, thought that, 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 you know, 
they'd be very careful in this country. So they lowered interest rates in this country, but nowhere near as much as other developed countries. And as soon as there was a hint that inflation might be going up, and there were a couple of, they put the rates back up again, only to have to bring them down since then, all the way down to where they are today. Now that transformation in thinking about the link between money, liquidity, and inflation has been a phenomenal shift. And we've now got a situation where how do you disengage from what you've got? How do you disengage from negative interest rates? How do you disengage from um, you know, encouraging people to take more debt? You have the Hain Royal Commission telling you that um, banks knowingly lent people more than they knew they could afford. They fudged the numbers to justify the loan in the culture of greed. And the response to the pandemic is increase the amount of liquidity that people can get. Well, they can take it out of their super, they can get it from the bank. Banks are encouraged to lend at lower interest rates. To, you know, when we already had a record level of household debt, nearly 120% of GDP, 200% of household income, and we're now encouraging more. This is an incredible shift. And the unwinding of that is just significant. And so and that's the drift in, I mentioned before, the, the drift to funding recurrent expenditure on debt, which governments never should have done or never wanted to do. And here we've got massive increases in this budget, which are on debt. And the debt number is going to rocket out to, I don't know, a trillion and a half in 10 years. And, uh, but the components of that are going to be very significant. So these are, that monetary side is very significant shift. The old trade-off between inflation and unemployment, you know, not really there. Um, you know, still hoping that you get some sort of pressure by pushing the unemployment rate down to push wages up, but nothing to guarantee those wages will go up because the nature of the wage of the labour market has shifted so much. It's a very big shift. And when you've had on top of that responses to the pandemic, which have changed the way we work, the way we live, where we travel, where we save, where we invest, all that, those changes in behaviour haven't filtered through to the thinking about these numbers. So the numbers today don't mean what they meant before. And you can create a situation where the unemployment rate can be driven down because we've got a fortress Australia. We've closed off the international, you know, we are creating a unique set of circumstances which is, you know, in the themes of 100 years or so ago, very protectionist. Mm. Well, we had a big drift away from when people realised that that sort of protectionism actually cost us. We were, I think, number one in the world in terms of standard of living at the turn of the century. Suddenly we lose that, mostly because of that protectionist attitude. Here's an opportunity in the pandemic to go back to that. Now, these are big, big shifts. I'm not putting, I'm not ranking them, but these are the sort of shifts that have occurred and, you know, realising that you can, you know, you don't have to work from the office. That's a big shift. There's a lot of hybrid employment now, and it won't come back. So the values that have been put on commercial property in Sydney and Melbourne, Brisbane, they will not be sustained. And that's going to have a big impact on the debt that's associated with those and the valuations that uh, the people have worked on. And, you know, these are these consequences of what was a really... I think a lot of it was just, let's just deal with the situation with increasing liquidity. It's had a lot of other consequences. And then governments in the pandemic have said, well, we wouldn't normally want to spend money, but we have to. You know, so we're spending a lot more money. And the transition to see Frydenberg sort of sitting there one day saying, you know, debt and deficit's a disaster, <laughs> back in black, thank God, and then suddenly spending like a drunken sailor, you think, you know, that transformation in a year is, is staggering. And it is, nobody's thinking about the long-term consequences of that. And we have got a massive debt overhang now, which will, not just in the household sector, but, you know, look how sensitive those, all these people that rushed in, first-home buyers that rushed in the last six months to get into the housing sector. 
in the expectation that, well, prices won't go down. <laughs> I might be wrong, right? Prices might go down. And, um, you know, they're still a bit in the momentum. And they've pulled money into you know, job maker and house, house maker, whatever they call these schemes. And, you know, they've, they've supported that sector just to keep the economy going, but it's not sustainable. Do we have a housing bubble in Australia? Oh, massive, yeah. You know, one of the most expensive housing markets in the world. And you ask yourself, how do we get there? You know, I'm staggered to go to the United States and big homes, half home, uh, about half our price. <laughs> Something's wrong. Fiddle with the exchange rate if you like, but bottom line is we have got, we have distorted our housing market amazingly. And, you know, the, the extent to which around here, in the time I've been living here, we've had massive expansions in, in new homes. You know, this used to be a sort of an aged care area. Now there's massive home expansion in new homes, so that the local council here has to deal with the fact they've got a very large young population and a very large old population. Mm. And, um, th and those shifts are very big. I mean, the shift away from migration and itinerant workers, visa-based workers, that's going to have a big impact in this country. Yeah. And they don't turn it around quickly. You can't go back to, let's have an immigration of 200,000 when you haven't got a global solution on the virus. So the, the counter-argument, John, is to say, well, the price Australians pay for housing isn't like the sticker price on the home. It's not the one point whatever million mm. that the, the house goes for at auction on the weekend. It's the amount that they repay in monthly mortgage repayments. Mm. And that hasn't really increased substantially. So far. So far. So, so what do you make of the user cost of housing argument? Well, I mean, that will increase. I mean, there's no doubt that right now you've got the most unique set of circumstances where that money's been pushed out. See, one of the problems with subprime, it's the same thinking. The subprime market, right, was basically politically driven in the US. We've got to get money out the door. We've got to increase home ownership. We've got to... So you had Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac setting a standard, if you like. And basically the loans that the banks were making were incredible. They would lend you up to about 125% of the value of the house, real value of the house, at an artificially low interest rate that you would reset in time, punting that house prices go up over time, the equity of your equity in the home goes up, you are able to reset those loans, pay a bit higher interest rate. And of course, you've got a bigger equity in the home, you start with no equity in the home. But in the US case, on a no recourse basis, so that if you could not make your interest payments, you hand the keys back. So suddenly 18 million houses were handed back to the, you know, they were bulldozing new developments in the US because they just couldn't make, ever make them pay. And but that same mentality is, you know, well, we just, you know, don't listen to Hain, we'll just lend people even more. Um, and, um, and the expectation that over time, in a foreseeable future, the cost of servicing that debt will not go up much. And by the way, their wages probably will go up so they'll be better able to afford it. And most people have, you know, younger people have seen to, it's been seen to push the limit on their wages and push the limit on their borrowing just to get in and, uh, you know, hoping that it all settles down in time. Well, what happens if it doesn't? What happens, for example, if finally all this liquidity is inflationary and the world inflation picks up and central banks, even this week, Powell was starting to talk about the possibility that they may have to look at increasing interest rates. Um, you just imagine if you suddenly start increasing interest rates in that environment, you're going to have a very big shakeout because the cost of servicing those loans is just going to go up. So it's nice and artificial right now, but it's not sustainable. And house prices will come off. 
And you know, so then suddenly the people who thought they had net equity in the home don't have net equity in the home. So if anyone starts to reset those loans on the basis of equity or some sort of notion of an LVR, now the Reserve Bank's saying, oh, we don't, we'll keep flooding the world with liquidity, the market's here with liquidity, because the APRA will actually control the lending. They'll put some restrictions on it. At the same time, the government's making it easier, not harder, to get, you know, to get loans. And, and um, you know, if APRA starts putting LVR ratios on the banks or whatever mechanism they use, it's going to be a very different world. And that filters through very significantly. And, you know, it's just you get so used to how you are and how things are going, but they can be dramatically different. And in Australia, we've ended up creating a, a huge housing bubble, I think, which, um, you know, will come back to haunt us in time. Did the deregulation agenda that you pushed with the Fraser government back in the 70s help to enable the great mortgaging? Yeah, look, I think there were two things we called for, and I actually wrote a big report for... Uh, Campbell that nobody paid any attention to, but it was in the context of offshore banking in Australia. But I focused on the fact that deregulation has two shoes. One is the deregulation of the banks themselves, and the other side is the improvement of prudential regulation and supervision. And we only got the first one. Mm. And they've been struggling to set the second one. And uh, in this country, we came to the view that, well, that's not really something that should be left to the Reserve Bank. We'll set up this separate body, APRA, and uh, they'll do it in conjunction with ASIC and so on. <laughs> well, you know, we still don't have an effective understanding of prudential supervision in this country. And, you know, I've argued this now a lot on the climate debate and the climate risk and the impact of, of climate risk on superannuation funds, banks and so on, which they weren't taking account of. We started a project about 12 or 13 years ago called the Asset Owners Disclosure Project. And our whole aim was to say, look, governments are going to dick around deciding whether or not they price carbon or whether they mandate biofuels or whatever. But basically, in the end, it could be driven by investment, and it should be driven by investment. So let's look at what the big investors of the world are doing with their money. So we took the top 500 global investors, which are sovereign wealth funds, pension superannuation funds, some insurance companies, some university endowment funds, top 500. And we came up with a very sophisticated uh, survey of their uh, identification and management of climate risk. And um, then on the basis of that survey, we rated them and we ranked them, <laughs> top 500. And of course, you know, the initial reaction was piss off, we don't want to do any of this, we don't think this is a risk. But our argument was that the, say a pension fund, a trustee of a pension fund, a director of a pension fund, has a fiduciary responsibility to manage that money with a long-term horizon, the working life of the individual whose funds they're managing, to maximise their return at the end of their life. And here are all these, these um, funds were basically, in the you know, 12, 13 years ago, were basically um, doing, doing two things. They were using short-term focused asset managers and advisors who they remunerated on the basis of short-term performance, so they didn't look at anything like a climate risk. And secondly, then, when you looked at their allocation of their assets, as best we could say, initially it was about 55% of their investments in climate-exposed investments, and less than 2% in what you call low-carbon-intensive low investments. A 50-to-2 punt against a financial crisis induced 
climate-induced financial crisis. And initially, you know, we got a lot of pushback, but then you got the big players coming in, the big CalPERS, the big public pension fund in the US came in and said, well, you know, we'll take this seriously, and they got a AAA rating. And then all the other pension funds saying, what are they doing and we're not doing? And so it started to spread, and by the time we pulled out of that about three years ago, at least three quarters of those major asset owners had shifted. And some of them had really, you know, like Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, the largest in the world, quit coal and... Uh, Rockefellers had no fossil fuel investment, even though they made all their money out of fossil fuels. Yeah, but there was a lot of big change taking place. And it got picked up by um, Mark Carnegie at the Bank of England and under the Financial Stability Board, set up the Bloomberg Task Force. And now, and our view was we're all about disclosure. We weren't about being prescriptive about how you should deal with climate risk, just that you recognise it. And once you recognise it, put your own price on carbon, if you like, internally. You, once you recognise it, how are you going to manage it? And there are a lot of ways in which you can manage it. Uh, you can quit. You can divest. You can you know, buy, put more into low-carbon-intensive investments. You can you know, derivatives and all sorts of structures. That, um, and and that's, that really changed everything. And that, those task forces are now to the point where you're going to get compulsory disclosure of climate risk, not just in those sort of institutions, but also in banks. You've seen the banks react. In corporates are now going to be held accountable for this, uh, for their, well, their management of climate risk, their carbon footprint, if you like. And, you know, this has frightened a lot of people. And you're seeing a lot of investor action now at AGMs pushing companies to shift their position, uh, not, not supporting their remuneration unless they adjust to climate. Now, this was a big, big, big shift, a really big shift. And now we are at the point where they're starting to understand it, so much so that they're pushing governments, you know. They're pushing governments to say, well, you know, we really do need a sensible transition strategy on climate. Uh, we've got one in our fund or in our company or whatever. But these things are not, you know, everyone says they're frightening. Um, I was on the board of a big printing group in the 15 years ago, so maybe more, 20 years ago. And I made the outrageous suggestion at a board meeting that we should look at our carbon footprint because we had very heavy power use, big old printing, you know, they, they, those big old machines used to have a lot of power. And you use a lot of, trans, trans, a lot of um, logistics, transportation and logistics. And the report came back, we did it, and the report came back and said, look, if you just restructure your use of power and your use of transport and logistics, don't cut anything, don't fire anyone, you can improve your bottom line by 30%. And suddenly it made sense to worry about your carbon footprint. Mm. Now, most companies have gone or are going through that sort of process. And that's a big difference. That's a big transition now. And I think that climate transition where they are now way ahead of governments. You know, there's a fair bit of greenwashing in some of the things you see around the world and what the oil companies say and what they're actually doing. And it, but their trend is irreversible. And that'll make a massive difference to, to the whole thing because once they start shifting their investment strategies... You know, one of the things that happened early on was Hank Paulson, uh, who was Secretary of the US Treasury at the time of the GFC, he came out and said uh, in response to that sort of argument that the risk of a climate-induced financial crisis dwarfed the risk that he ran in the subprime crisis in the United States. And suddenly people started to say, geez, you know, this is serious stuff. So you've got the Bank of England, you've got ex-heads of Treasury, you've got people really shifting it. And the Reserve Bank started to, to understand it here too. They called us in and said, well, we hear you think we've got a systemic risk. We don't think we have. 
So we suggested that they do their work and work it out and then start raising the issue, which they've done. And that has made a big difference to the attitude of APRA. So I said to the Reserve Bank, you can have APRA do all the stress tests you like on a bank. It doesn't mean you won't have a systemic problem. And it doesn't mean they're right, the stress tests either. Mm. So, you know, you've got to be aware of the risks that you're running. And a climate-induced financial crisis is easy to happen. It can be driven by extreme weather events. I mean, look at the cost of, um, you know, Katrina wiped out an entire city. Uh, went, one of them went up the coast of New York and had to waterproof the whole, the whole uh, New York City and they had to shift from centralised to distributed power generation. Also, these are big costs. And you've seen that around the world. Secondly, governments are responding to climate. Those have impacts, relative price impacts. And of course, um, then there's technology, which has changed the face of the, the response. You know, solar and wind are so cheap these days that, you know, why would you contemplate doing anything else? So why would you have a, a coal investment? Why would you have a gas investment? This is slowly coming through, not so much in the Morrison government, but the rest of the world is moving. And uh, so, I think that's another big transition that's taken place and, you know, we feel that we had a big impact on the early stages of that, getting people to just think about the climate risk you're running um, without being prescriptive. And um, it was very interesting how we got a lot of attention globally on that. We actually moved the headquarters of that, that to um, started in Australia, but we moved it to London. And then we really had some fun trouble funding it, so we rolled it into Share Action. They keep doing those surveys. But the point's been made. And mm. um, you look at our super pension funds now, they're very conscious of the climate risk they're running. Um, and some, one of the very first AAA-rated funds was the local government super in Australia. They had one guy in there that had taken this seriously all the way through. They had a very sophisticated system for dealing with it and, um, and managing it and changing their investment. And then, of course, over time, and particularly with an increased focus on ESG investment, they're finding that people don't actually lose revenue. They earn more by having run a sensible uh, investment strategy so that uh, all the old ideas, oh, it's going to cost us returns, don't apply either. They actually are doing better. So, um, you know, investing some of the technology that gives you the transition, gives you a bigger return. So, you know, it's um, been a long education process, but... Um, it, it, it's another big change. So you've got a lot of changes in the answer to your question that have, I think, shifted the paradigm. And, um, you know, we still have a long way to go. We still have a terrible amount of denialism in government. You know, one of the things that I set up recently is this Council for the Human Future, where we've identified 10 existential risks to the future of humanity, basically. But it includes climate, it includes resource depletion, population. Um, you know, um, food, food security, uh, and so on. But one of the big ones is just that governments don't want to actually address any of these risks of nuclear war and weapons of mass destruction. So a lot of those issues. Now, that, that uh, is getting a lot of attention. We just did a big global conference on it. I put in a presentation to the recent meeting of the Nobel laureates. I mean, there's, there's a whole lot of interest in these longer-term threats. But when you get a pandemic, when pandemic, another pandemic is one of them, um, that you know, we had specific warnings about COVID, specific, and nobody paid any attention. And we are now getting, one of I mentioned before about how sometimes the review is static, we'll fix that, we'll get through this pandemic and we must move on. No, you should be preparing for the inevitability of the next one. And you're seeing how fast this one's mutating, you won't already be in that. And there's no consideration of that. 
We're just looking at vaccinating people and opening the borders and you know, going back to what we were. That ain't going to happen. Mm. It's never going to happen. And, um, you know, so looking at those sort of threats to the future needs people to be prepared to pay attention to the science, listen to the warnings, you know. I've been arguing that I think that, that uh, the pandemic really is a bit of a dress rehearsal for those issues coming to the fore. And everyone puts them down, plays them on, they're not at the risk of a nuclear war, but really, you know, you're on the edge of it in a couple of parts of the world. Certainly weapons of mass destruction have been developed everywhere. Um, the um, population issue, you know, we know the planet can't, as it is, support the population we've got, let alone the sort of growth numbers that are in prospect. And resource depletion uh, is very significant, and it's going to impact enormously in the future. Um, food security, uh, we, you know, ministers in Australia tell me we've got no problem in Australia because we export food. You know, and I say, for how long? You know, it's a different world when you start to look at the reality. And climate has a big, all those risks are interrelated. Climate has a huge impact on food and on resource depletion, and, you know. So you've got to take an overarching response to them and start to think mm. about it. And uh, the annoying thing, as I say in there, is what we call denialism. Nobody likes the term. But governments don't want to listen to the warnings. They don't want to listen to the science. You know, we say we're basing it on medical advice. The medical advice is pretty thin and being very disparate, um, going, you know, drawing, back, drawing, drawing on the Spanish flu of 1918, maybe. But um, the body of evidence on, on uh, the likely impact of food security or climate, huge scientific evidence, peer-assessed scientific evidence over decades, and they don't want to pay attention mm. to it. Now, I find that just the most disturbing feature of politics and government today, that they, these warnings are there, and we'll get through this one and we'll just move on. It's like the bushfires. We don't really prepare properly for the next one or the next flood. Yet, you know, working on, say, floods, you can use regenerative agriculture to improve the carbon content of the soil, reduces emissions. Agriculture can be net negative emissions, but it also makes the soils more drought-resistant and resilient. You know, why wouldn't you do that? The evidence is overwhelming. But they don't, they don't think about those sort of consequences. We... Politics being short-term, we'll get by this pandemic today, we'll handle it the best we can. Morrison sort of set out claiming credit for everything as a, you know, as a national cabinet. Basically, the states did it. And we still don't have a solution on quarantine. We don't have a solution on, on vaccines rollout. And I was asked back in the 23rd of January, remember when the first Wuhan flight arrived in Australia, what should we do? All flights into quarantine, national quarantine immediately. Yeah, it's pretty no obvious. doubt. That that's the only way. And if you don't do it, you're going to actually ultimately have to do it. Yeah. And this is the problem. You know, ultimately, they get dragged to doing things which end up costing them a lot more money. Yeah. They're much more disruptive and, uh, and much more difficult to implement. And, uh, you know, and they've just uh, got caught short. And that's what's happened. I mean, the world switched. I think the way I look at it, go back to the middle of the last century, we started to see the consequences from the Industrial Revolution through of not worrying about the impact of what we were doing on resources, on, you know, on the climate. On, and suddenly uh, we are starting to see this trend to say, well, these are very significant issues and we can't eradicate, continue to eradicate species. We can't uh, you know, continue to live with a phenomenal ice melt mm. uh, and so on and so forth. And people are starting to really think about what we need to do. And they make fun of the student protests, but kids get it. 
My kids have got a very clear idea that the world's being stuffed up by politicians. They both went to a, the first uh, student um, protest. We were away. I was in, speaking in Fiji and they did their own posters and turned up. And the 10-year-old's poster was, this is my future. No, no discussion or direction from us at all. And the 16-year-old, 15 as she was then, was the denial is not a policy. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, kids get it. Uh, and their parents aren't getting it. And their grandparents are getting it. So you've got this sort of two ends of the age spectrum that are, yeah. that are getting it. But uh, I don't know how long we can go before it's a major election issue in this country. It's those boomers. <laughs> um, <laughs> On, on the question of politics being short-term, I'm interested in the link between wages stagnation and the housing bubble. Mm. And if your income isn't growing, the only ways to consume more are through debt or capital gains. Mm. Actually, interestingly, in, in one of those books I gave you, House of Debt, Mean and Sufi, the authors, find that for a period during the mid-2000s in the United States, income growth and credit expansion were negatively correlated. So in the areas where incomes were declining, mm. um, mortgage credit was increasing. And I wonder whether as a result of stagnant or declining wages over the last decade or more, just focusing on Australia now, politicians and governments have pumped the housing bubble as a way to sort of paper over those cracks and mm. enable people to con continue enjoying the same standards of living that they had in the past or that their parents had. What do you make of that yeah, idea? Yeah, I think if you look at the, the calculation of the standard of living income per capita relative to the level of debt of the household, you see some pretty alarming trends. Mm. Because uh, we have been able to... Well, I mean, wages have been flat for the best part of a decade. We yeah. haven't had the wage growth, we haven't had the productivity growth that in a longer term sense justifies the wage increases. We've had some very big shifts in the nature of the labour market. And right now, of course, without with being unable to augment the skills from migration and from itinerant workers and so on, um, we're seeing some interesting shakeouts. So you can make the unemployment number look good because we're Fortress Australia, but it doesn't mean you're just solving that labour market problem. And it doesn't this is the big issue: will be job security, not so much unemployment. And um, people, you know, you've seen the big increase in underemployment. And there's a debate going on as to whether these numbers in the way they were estimated in the past actually make sense today. But just sticking with those numbers, it still, you know, um, puts the labour market uh, excess capacity well into the teens and um, the sum of unemployment and underemployment and some very significant shifts. So right now you've, you've seen, for example, they're boasting that, well, there's not too much reaction from JobKeeper coming off except we are starting to see a shift in a couple of things. In that last number that came out, where you know we lost 60,000 jobs but uh, 30,000 increase, so net loss of 30,000, was all a shift away from part-time that had been kept on by JobKeeper. They're not going to be there, those jobs. They won't come back, uh, and, um, which is a, a significant shift. But on the other side, why did the unemployment rate go down? Because participation rate fell. And, you know, and it fell, I think, by 0.3 of a percent, which, which uh, meant that a lot of no a number of people post-JobKeeper gave up looking for work. They'd been sustained through the process. Bugger it, not going to happen now. 
you know, we'll go on to, we'll go back on to job keeper or job seeker, I should say. And uh, these are big changes, early stages. Don't know what they were, how they were, and how they're going to work out. But we've got excess labour market in some areas, and then in other areas you can't get any workers at all. I mean, just go into the hospitality sector. There's a massive shortage of chefs and baristas and table staff, and you know, this is massive. And they, you know, they can't see how they can fill that without. That was an industry that was always relying on the itinerant visa worker and, to some extent, migration, foreign students. They don't have any of those. And that's, you know, so you see these these ads in the hospitality sector staggering. We went to. I remember going to Byron in uh, in January. Every single restaurant and bar and cafe that we saw had big signs in the window wanting all those staff. They couldn't get them. Uh, our friends who own cafes were closing them. You know, that's just, mm. just a hell of a shakeout. But that's giving you a, a particular market that wasn't supported, lost international tourism, king hit. Take, it will take years to come back, if indeed it comes back. Um, you know, you're, you're seeing Qantas, <laughs> even though Joyce has been able to extract a hell of a deal out of the government over the time, they are today, yesterday or this week, announcing that they're going to shed more labour, that they're going to cut costs, and, and um, they're taking an opportunity to do things they would never have otherwise been able to do. But job insecurity is going up, you know, and though they were protected in a way during the, the pandemic and JobKeeper was important to that, that's not going to be sustained. And so you're getting a, a significant shift in the nature of the employment in that industry. And so you can go around a lot of industries. Right now you can't in the building sector because of the money poured into housing you can't get tradies. People's works are being queued and you're waiting to get somebody to come if you can get them at all. Because that'll all put upward pressure on prices in time, but not necessarily wages. I mean, most of the old idea that the tradies are all blue-collar workers, they're not. They're all small business people, mm. splitting their income with their wife and doing very well, thanks very much, you know. It's a very different world politically to what was taken for granted, even 10 or 15 years ago. And some of the seats that the Labor Party has depended on for that so-called blue-collar vote isn't there anymore. Yeah. And uh, so this is calling for a very significant shift in thinking about about what you, you know, what what's what story you're going to put out there. So you can make it look good. You can fund a sector. I remember in the 70s when I first had some debates with Treasury about you know how are you going to we had a recession, how are you going to get out of it. But what we always do is stimulate housing. Housing with all its you know. Um, Tentacles flying out to you know mm. buying white goods and all sorts of things that we get to get the housing sector up. You know we use that as a as the automatic stabiliser. That mentality still applies today in what they've done, and uh, and the Reserve Bank is happily doing it on the basis that APRA will take care of the risks that are not really thinking about what those risks are, and it doesn't take much for you know the shit to hit the fan in these things. I mean, and suddenly if they if inflation picks up, and you look at some of the inflation numbers, record levels of copper prices, iron ore prices, you know some of the basic mineral prices, uh, coffee, um, you know um, corn, um, massive increases in the last year. Um, I think uh, I looked at some of the, the freight costs, seven hundred percent from a year ago. But these are huge numbers. And at some point, they must flow into the cost base of economies and they must impact on the measured rate of inflation uh, at a time where the nominal rate of wages is not going to go up. Right? There's nothing going to push that up. It will go up in some sectors where there are acute shortages and they're bidding labour off each other. 
but that's not going to dominate the aggregate number. Mm. And so we are still in a world of low nominal wages, uh, probably negative, even the budget admits negative real wages until the last year, and that's pushed on a, you know, an unusual assumption. Um, and, um, you know, so we aren't going to see any improvement in, in, in real wages or nominal or real wages at a time where the risk is really quite large that their debts, and it's not just housing debts. I mean, people put a hole on their credit card, okay. When they've got some cash, they paid it down. They had big savings and they paid it down. That's ephemeral, though. That's all going. The savings have come down rapidly. But the credit card debts are there, and they're still charging interest rates, pre-COVID interest rates, of you know, 20% on credit cards. Um, and none of that was reflected. None, they have, none of those have reflected the cut in the official cash rate. So, you know, I think the potential for a significant debt crisis is very real. Add to that the government debt, add to that the corporate sector debt. And a lot of corporate sector debt is really close to junk status. You know, I had this debate here, I broke a story down here about collateralised debt obligations. Our local council in the local paper, I just happened to, not sleeping one night, looked at the report, the finance report. And it said that they had just appointed a new overall funds manager for their trust money, about 65 million, something like that. And it was Lehman Brothers. <laughs> so then I looked at, you know, roughly, as you could from published data, how much they had been put into CDOs, which is what Lehman's were promoting. And it was at least 60, 65%. So I wrote a piece saying, this is insane. You're getting a small, you know, couple of blips over the, the bank bill rate, and uh, you know, or fixed deposit rate, I should say, um, for all this risk that you're taking with a collateralised debt obligation. And they came back, the council wrote a letter to the paper saying, no, I didn't understand these things because they're AAA rated. And they were notionally AAA rated, except the composition of them had only a tiny tranche at the top that was AAA and they were predominantly junk. <laughs> so I made the prediction that, and they said we only have to hold them to maturity to get our money back on. So this is not going to happen. They won't, you won't get to hold them to maturity. They'll implode long before that. They're all built on a subprime loan that'll implode when the house price doesn't go up. You know, it's just it's that simple stuff. Well, we haven't learnt much about that since. We're still doing those sort of calculations. A lot of the corporate debt is junk, and a lot of that debt got bought by central banks. Mm. <laughs> you know, in Italy and, and you know some of the more marginal European countries. And so we, you know, you're never very good. Economists are hopeless at saying what's going to trigger a crisis. You can see the elements of a crisis. You can't say exactly what it is that triggers it, but it will come. You, know, you go back. I, I did predict that uh, that 2020 would be a year of recession in Australia and the US, but I was doing that on the basis of the economies weakening the way they were and the in inevitable consequences of bubbles in housing and, and stock markets and so on. And then, of course, we had the pandemic that made sure I was right for the wrong reason, which is why economists will usually take credit. I was right, <laughs> you know. But as a result of what I saw in our local council, I predicted that we would, we would have a, a global financial crisis, that that mountain of debt based on subprime, would just, which was securitised into those collateralised debt obligations and so on, would, would collapse. And so one of the a couple of the funds that I manage, I recommended that we start reducing our exposure to the stock market. So what, what year was that? 2007, yeah. leading into 2008. One of them, we called in all our asset managers, you know, whether they were growth managers, and said, OK, I said, I want to give you a hypothesis. My view is the stock market will go down 50% next year, 2008. 
what would you do with the money you manage for us? Every one of them said, don't get out of the market. <laughs> Stay in the market, underweight this, overweight that, you know, all this sort of bullshit. And uh, we said, no, no, but if, 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 if you're wrong, right, I've got a 6% fixed deposit here at Westpac. If I took 10, 15, 20 million put in there at 6%, okay, I'm not going to get the peak of the stock market, but I'm sure as well going to miss that trough if that hypothesis is right. Mm. And uh, they, you know, they didn't change their views. And when it happened, of course, it, you know, it was a bloodbath and they, yeah. everyone got caught short. But you have to think that way. It's one, one of those... Dynamic. Not, it's not static. It's dynamic. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like one of those cases where it's better to fail conventionally than succeed unconventionally. Well, you know, the financial sector heard nobody wants to be too different. Yeah. We're all, caught, we're all back in the same trend. And really there's money to be made in not backing the trend. You'll be wrong for a while. People have gone into, you know growth stocks versus value stocks or vice versa, only to get that fundamentally wrong for a couple of years. Mm. <laughs> Their performance looks pretty ordinary. But there are elements of that happening all the time. And you've got to make those judgments. And, you know, in economics, I grew up in this world where Johns Hopkins, we had the leading econometrician in the world, Carl Christ at the time, who had worked on the Manhattan Project as a physicist and come into economics and started the econometrics and so on. And, um, you know, there was so much precision coming into application of mathematics to economics. And I always got very nervous about, you know, you get a point estimate from a model and nobody actually paid attention to the limiting structure of the assumptions. They just looked at the point estimate. Um, I'll never forget when I looked at business economists in Australia, set up Macquarie Economics, Bill... Bill, uh, Fer Bill um, Buttress, Will Buttress had been um, an economist with Hill Samuel and they started in those days doing these surveys of um, you know, what the economists think, what the market economists think, you know, what's going to be the growth rate, what's going to be the inflation rate, what's going to happen to the unemployment rate, what's going to happen to the exchange rate, so on. And he, everyone would do point estimate, you know, 2%, 2.25, something. Mm. He'd always put 0.69 on every forecast <laughs> on the basis you can all get stuffed. This is irrelevant to, you know. And it was, it was making a valid point that, that we got so enamoured with the mathematical precision of the models. And I, you know, used to teach my students in that era by saying, well, today we want to build a model that will show that interest rates will go up. And then tomorrow I'd come in and say, okay, now we want to build a model that's going to show that interest rates will go down. And the third day is you tell me what judgment you're going to make about those two models. Hmm. And that was the essence, the essence of judgment. And we still don't see it. We still see point estimates being given all the attention, which, you know, if you look at the extent to which they are so heavily dependent on the assumptions that were made in those models. I mean, in the climate area, everyone who's got a view has got a model. And yeah. surprisingly, those models prove their point. Nobody actually takes it apart and says, yeah. you know. So there's, there's that lack of precision which, uh, or bogus it, it, precision. Yeah, bogus precision, which, which well, became an end in itself. Mm. You, know, you get questions in exams about you know, precise outcomes. Can you prove this? You know, what's the point of proving it if I have to change a whole lot of assumptions? You know, I'm, okay, on the basis of those assumptions, yes, I can prove it, but I don't think those assumptions are real. And uh, you know, that was always a debate with our, with our um, academics. People like Nehans was just an interesting guy. He's a brilliant person but um, these are interesting questions because they don't teach judgment and in the end it's judgment I used to say to my students okay we've done this big exercise with um, 
with interest rates. Now, um, what about if you're hired by the ANZ and on Monday morning they say, what's going to happen to the dollar? Next week, next month, the end of the year. What are you going to do? Don't tell me you're going to run about five of these models and tell them that you get five different conclusions. You're going to have to be able to make a judgment on the basis of those models and a whole host of other things. And that judgment becomes more important than the mathematical precision of the mm. model. But that gets lost. It's still getting lost. We still see the precision that people say this is, you know, a finite outcome, this is what's going to happen. Just like the first estimate of the cost of JobKeeper, you know, it was a third wrong. Mm. Because the model's assumptions about the take-up of that were just wrong. And nobody bothered to step back and look at the way that was being administered by the tax office to say, oh, shit, that's not going to happen. You know, and that's what happened in the end. Of course, somebody did do that. I think a low-level Treasury bloke questioned the outcome. And they went back and looked at it and said, yeah, well, that's right. What's happening at the level of the tax office is not being reflected in the numbers we put out. Yeah. And, you know, but this is, this is typical of what is a weakness in the debate today is we have too much focus on the specifics of, of um, you know, point estimates and precision, fake precision. Yeah. When it comes down to judgment, then you've got to make a lot of judgments. And today, unfortunately, most of them are made from the point of view of political expediency, not from the point of view of good policy. Yeah. Big theme of this podcast has been that economics is not physics. Yeah. Is it too harsh to call the 2010s a lost decade economically for Australia? 2010? The 2010s? From 2000 to 2010 or 2010 to 2000? The latter. Yeah, look, I think, I think, uh, oh, there's my wife. I just better tell her. It's just sick. No worries. Hi. Oh. Tell my coming wife. shortly. We've only got two. Okay, yep, coming shortly. Bye. Um, We've only got a couple. Of I didn't realise that she'd rung me several times. Sorry. Oh, right, no worries. Um, luckily, we didn't go to pick you up. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm getting it. But she told me she wasn't going. A, again, we have a. An empirical question there. It's <laughs> <laughs> causation. Yeah. Been lost in that. Yeah. But it is. It is. Um, look, I, I, I understand where Garner comes from and the sort of numbers he uses, and there are large elements of truth in it. The right? dog days. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. whether or not you sign off on the detail, all the detail, is a different thing. But there's no doubt that that decade was a flat decade, and there's no doubt, as we were arguing, I said I predicted that we'd go into recession in 2020. On the basis of what I saw happening in 20, 2018, 2019, going into 2020, did a lot of speeches to business audiences and so on saying, you've got to get ready for the fact that two things will happen. One, the US will go into recession. This Trump stuff's not going to be sustained. I mean, you, you can boost share prices by giving people financial capacity to buy back their shares, which is a record level, or pay record dividends, but this is not sustainable if you're not paying for those taxes. So that will come apart, and then, of course, Australia will be following that with, with a vengeance. And, but, you know, so I, I, we were all saying pretty much the same thing, that yeah. there was nothing inherent in the growth numbers that were going to give it. And, you know, give us what... The, you know, they were talking about above-trend growth numbers, right? To get above-trend growth numbers is a big exercise. Right now, for example, everyone's focused on the fact that, ah, we've recovered the GDP level pre-COVID, but we are still 10 percentage points below where we would have been if the pre-COVID forecasts had been validated. So we've got an output gap. And how are we going to close that output gap? Nothing in the budget does that. 
Nothing actually catches that up. We'd have to sustain above trend growth for a series of quarters to get that. Nobody talks about that. So in the terms of the hard numbers, I mean, it, it, they're running a great fiction about how well we're doing and how well we've done compared to others, but we should have got strong growth numbers. We fell 7%, right? We threw 15% of GDP at it, <laughs> and we're coming off a low base, 7% fall. Uh, we're coming off a low base. We're coming off a base which is big pent-up demand, particularly in consumers and savings and so on. So we get two quarters of 3% growth, almost getting back to recovering the seven. But that's hardly a, a, you know, a strong recovery. It's good to look at that and you run that political argument for a while. But give me, that, give me a look at that in two years' time or next year even, and the numbers won't be strong. The growth no. numbers, quarterly growth numbers will come off. The quarterly inflation numbers will go up. <laughs> and we're going to be in a different world come post-election. I think, as I said this week in an interview, you know, normally when a new government comes in, they look at the circumstances and say, oh, we've just been advised, you know, things are much worse than we thought they were. We're going to have to pull back, restructure, you know, whatever. We can't commit to, we can't stay committed to some of those promises we made in the election campaign. Well, if Morrison gets re-elected, which looks like he will, he'll be doing it to himself. They'll have to have a budget, you know, day of reckoning. <laughs> what they've done is unsustainable. And if, you, you know, if these big recurrent areas, which will all be blowing out every year, because eligibility, eligibility picks up when they never get that right, and of course um, you know, businesses work on getting a, developing a business model to gain the system, so over time, you know, you look at what happened with childcare. We had childcare centres with no kids. <laughs> it's an extreme example. And there were a lot of those, all these learning institutions that came up when they tried to privatise training outside TAFE and rolling TAFE into these companies. And all. That was just a rip-off for the business community because there's no way in government that they could set a set of rules that actually made sure that didn't happen. They could have done it, but they didn't think about it and, of course, it's too late. In home care packages now, I mean, just we've just had a family experience, sit down with the disability care provider and find that they're overcharging dramatically. Uh, I'm on the board of a disability group down here. We run a nursery at Welby, 55 or 60 disabled people. It's been a bloody nightmare trying to link that business-based assistance program to the NDIS. And they've come in and assessed people, and, you know, oh, no, you don't need a wheelchair. <laughs> really? <laughs> can't come and work without a wheelchair. This sort of stuff, you know, it's really just incredible. But the cost base of that is just running away. You can see it happening every day. And they're going to layers of more bureaucracy to try and police that or to try... So, you know, the come-to-God moment in the budget is about a year away, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Final question. I'm interested in your journey post-politics and how you think about it. So, 93... Mm you lose the so-called unlosable election. 95, you leave politics fully and finally. Mm -hmm. And I'd love, I'd love to hear how that experience was for you and how you think about yourself as a figure well, or your I, arc I made a decision to leave politics because I thought I'd had a fair run and they, weren't, they were getting to a stage where they were not interested in real policy. You know, let's just ditch the GST, let's just ditch any sense of reform, let's, you know... And so I made a personal decision that I would just move on. I'd make them vote for somebody, but I'd move on. And uh, I, I made that decision quite independently of anything else. And so I left politics before I was eligible for pension. 
Right? Laurie Oakes was taking bets all over the parliament. I'd stay the extra few months to get the pension. And, you know, again, it was a good example. You don't understand why I was here. I wasn't here to get money. You know, I actually, when I went into politics, I sold all my shares post 87 stock market crash at a massive loss. Gave away my Macquarie Bank shares, which would have made me tens of millions of dollars or more. Um, you know, just only had one asset, which was a house and the cars, or two assets. And so, you know, and I went into politics with a view that, I, you know, I'm not there to make money, I'm there to, to, to try and make a difference. And, you know, of course, you got accused of a whole lot of stuff like, you know, tax minimisation. So I rang the tax commissioner and said, um, I want an audit. <laughs> he said, no, he's ever asked for an audit. <laughs> um, so he said, and he came back and he said, look, I can't comment on, under the law, I can't comment on individual tax returns. But if you were caught in a press conference and somebody said whether or not you pay too much tax, you can say, oh, you've talked to me and I think you do pay too much tax. So I called a press conference and <laughs> it disappeared. But, you know, you had to set standards which, which really challenged people to think about why you were there. And... Um, you know, I, I wouldn't use Commonwealth cars. In early days, I realised that they were charging me 150 bucks to go from home in Double Bay to the airport, uh, and I could do it in 40 bucks for cab. So I just did cabs everywhere, all over Australia, uh, and my staff did cabs. We saved hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in terms of cost, just to make the point. Everyone hated me. All the politicians said, you're destroying our entitlements. I said, we're not here for entitlements, for Christ's sake. And, um, you know, your, your pension positions are unsustainable. You know, all these issues are... You're not there to milk the system. And, you know, we did a bit of a survey, Peter Reef and I, I reckon about 80% of people had doubled their income to go into politics, you know. Wow. And this, this, at the time, this was just a rough count in about 95, so... Um, you know, so when I decided to leave, I decided to leave. I didn't have a job to go do. I hadn't organised the party to give me anything. I never asked anybody for anything. I didn't get the pension, which has been a problem because I haven't had any superannuation. Uh, I've had to work. You know, the university's lost my super and the Reserve Bank didn't have any, you know, whatever. It's just, so I, I work. Um, and that's been a constraint, but I've, I've taken uh, an interest in a whole lot of sectors that I think are important. Um, obviously, I've done a fair bit. I did uh, 10 or so years in, um, in aged care. I did... On the board of or chairman of ABNM for 11 years, we turned it from a average investment bank to a you know number one investment bank. Um, we uh, you know I had a whole host of other business activities in all sorts of areas: manufacturing, mining. Um, started doing um, climate-related projects to show that you can make a quid for it. I was chairman of business council for National Business Leaders Forum on Sustainable Development with. Molly Harris Olson, Philip Toyne, and we're trying to educate the business community that, look, there are opportunities everywhere if you want to make the transition properly. So I did a whole lot of them. We built a household garbage recycling plant at Eastern Creek, so you can just turn household garbage into viable business proposition. Energy efficient light bulbs before they became fashionable. Uh, green data centres, uh, a lot of bioenergy sort of projects. Um, and, um, yeah, but they were all to make the point. I mean, I... I uh, moved out of most of them for a whole host of different reasons. but um, So I've done a fair bit of that, started a couple of charities from scratch, which I thought were in areas... I mean, politics, I'm you know, always part of the big charities, you know. I'd been part of the um, AIDS, anti-AIDS movement. 
um, as, as all political leaders were, but I started a breast cancer campaign for women um, trying to, the motivation was to get Keating to increase the amount of money for scientific and medical research. And so I started going from all these sort of mammography centres and so on and launching them and opening them and whatever, just to say, and that's not the best technology solution, I concede that, but it was to raise the profile, so the yellow daffodil campaigns when we started uh, in politics, just to make the point. When I left politics anyway, I thought, well, I don't think I should take the big charities, I should take the, the more difficult charities and use the position and experience that I've had. So we, I, um, I turned around the Arthritis Foundation from bankruptcy and then split off Osteoporosis Australia 22 years ago and built that to be a really significant charity. Kids Express, 15 years ago, dealing with kids with extreme mental stress and now taking that one step further, hasn't been announced yet. Um, dealing with a on-the-ground learning process in Western Sydney, Mount Druitt, um, disability care, a whole lot of those exercises. A lot of university committees, like the Sir Roland Wilson Foundation, where we get we train senior public servants with PhDs at ANU. Um, and uh, there's a lot of those sort of activities that I've, I've done. Um, still maintained interest in some of the, the climate areas. Um, we've developed uh, the storage answer, which hasn't been released yet, but everyone's looking at electric batteries. And they're only good for the short-term flicker, you know, 100 megawatts for half an hour. They don't store the power, so you've got solar power in the middle of the day worth nothing. Take it and bring it out at the evening peak or wind power in the middle of the night when it's worth them, I mean, negative prices, you know, you pick it up and pull it out at the, at the peak. That will be released, that thermal storage will be released soon, and that does a lot with industrial heat, and it's a really sophisticated technology. So a lot of effort going into those sort of things. Um, but, you know, I don't, I haven't done them to, to sort of make a lot of money. I've just been an advisor, or maybe I sat on the board and have helped get these things up and running. I mean, early stage technology is tough. Mm. Yeah, it really is tough, and I've done a fair bit of that. Did a lot of corporate turnarounds, turned around more on healthcare from being bankrupt to being uh, the largest healthcare provider, aged care provider in Australia, and took them around the world. We bought houses, nursing homes in England and Northern Ireland, and advised in homes in in um, in Singapore and Asia, um, and bought a lot of homes in Australia. Bought Western Healthcare. And, um, bought FAI nursing homes, big big groups put into one group. Went from 25 nursing homes to 125. Refinanced them several times. Uh, sold them out of private hospitals for twice what they were worth to an American group. Uh, sold them out of their assisted living, out of the self-care. So we just focused on nursing homes. So we really did know that industry inside out and were frustrated that government wasn't prepared to listen to it. Mm. Even though they had very significant studies done, Warren Hogan did one uh, on the pricing of residential aged care, which is now just completely ignored, <laughs> you know. And so you end up with what you've got today, which is a massive mountain of neglect. So I've tried to make a dif difference in areas where I think public policy is important. Of course, you get accused for, oh, you've got a vested interest. Well, I declare the interest, you know, I haven't made any money out of it, um, of any consequence. and. Um, beyond basically a wage in a lot of cases. I've uh, moved on and left it to others to finish or take the company forward. Um, but it makes the point that there are all these opportunities there that we don't take account of. Yeah. So I've done a whole lot of that sort of thing. 
For a young person wanting to make a contribution in Australia today, is, is politics the way to go? Well, my daughter said, uh, <laughs> my 16-year-old daughter at the time said to my wife, I think I might look at politics. My wife said, do you understand what a dirty and disruptive, terrible career that is? <laughs> she would not ever even contemplate it. Um, but I think it is seen as, young people do see it as a way to, if you can change it, if you can improve it, put it back to what it used to be or what it should be, I should say. It's not a nostalgia for the past. It's what it should be as a process of government. It's all about good governance. Um, and they're not interested in good governance. I mean, I've done some trust for New South Wales government. They're not interested in good governance. You know, they put you there as a board and you do it. And, but um, basically they're playing politics around every issue. And um, so I think that young people, though, are starting to get motivated, right? Here, for example, we've made a big noise down here about the council. I use the example of the fact that they lost a lot of money on the <laughs> collateralised debt obligations and Lehman Brothers, but they've done a whole lot of really bad governance things to the point where we've got them removed now and they've been replaced by an administrator who they're fixing all the things they didn't do, whether it was a planning issue, a roads issue, or, you know, projects that were never going to be dead, done but they're wasting money on it. In other cases, letting projects go they should have funded. Uh, now there's an election coming up for the local council and I think hopefully there'll be a new broom and they'll all get pushed out. But, uh, you know, these are, these are very important things which young people are starting to see that I can make a difference if I do actually get engaged in some sort of process like that. Not easy because you need a level of experience to do it. Um, it's a fair game if you, you know, you people who, a lot of people come to me and say, I want to get into politics. Well, you know, where do you start? I do a lot, for example, with the women's election, for women for election lobby and uh, those sort of training exercises for bringing women into parliament. It's something I started in 93 with the head of the Liberal Party, who was a woman, Chris McDivin, who'd signed my, she was president of the Liberal Party. And I said, look, it's just so unfair. The system discriminates against women, makes it almost impossible for them to get pre-selected. So let's identify them and train them and you know, bring them through and help them, mm. which we did. So the penetration of women in the Liberal Party in 96 was the highest it's ever been. And of course, Howard settled in and it just never recovered. And we've still got a big issue now. We're, got a paucity of representation at the cabinet level and in the whole party. Um, and, um, but they're issues that are important. But in that context, you're starting to see quite a lot of interest. There's this voices movement in key seats. I'm speaking to the Wentworth one this week. I've done quite a few of them, where they're just looking at getting government to focus on the issues that matter to people. They're not running particularly against a sitting member. They may end up with a candidate that does that, but bit like Zali in, uh, against Abbott, it was quite clear that he does not represent the interests of his constituency, whether it was same-sex marriage or whether it was climate or what, whatever. And she, you know, it was a shoe in to win. I uh, encouraged uh, Kieran Phelps to run in Wentworth. Made the argument on the day that by-election was called, I was in the ABC and I said to Anthony Green, you know, Liberals could lose this seat. Oh, Christ, he said 17.5% margin, they're never going to lose it. I said, they can. If some strong independent stands and runs principally on climate, they'll win that seat. I know the seat, right? And um, he laughed and, of course, she won. And then the political reaction is not to look at the magnitude of that loss, to say, oh, she only won by 1,800 votes. But that's on top of a 17.5% swing. Mm. And still Sharma's sitting 16.5%, 17% behind where Turnbull was. He, got the, he was always going to get the seat back, but... 
But there are messages there that are being ignored, and young people see those messages. So I think you're going to get quite a lot of, of young people wanting to stand. I've had a few come to me that are really enthusiastic, but you know, they may not... Well, they certainly won't get through the two-party system unless they align themselves on the way through, which really compromises their capacity to do what they want to do. But I do think standing as an independent maybe gives them a chance. So there was, I think there'll be more independents come. The two-party system has been its own worst enemy. It just won't clean up politics. It won't do anything about campaign funding or lobbying or question time performance or the role of the mm. committees in parliament or integrity you know, commissions or you know, truth in advertising uh, laws in, in political advertising, false and misleading conduct laws on politicians. I mean, there are all these things you can do to fix it, but they won't do any of them. In fact, they, when they get a chance, like recently, on, on developer donations, they made it easier, not harder. It's just, you know, they have no interest because each one believes they can exploit the system better than the other. Now, I think young people are starting to see all that. They're starting to see, you know, sports shorts, it gets a lot of attention that you put all that money into things, you know. I broke the story on, um, on Ross Kelly and the original sports shorts. They were paying money for lights and football fields that didn't exist and, you know, change rooms didn't exist and all this bullshit. And, you know, it was pretty easy to, to explode the government on that. And then how did she do it? She did it on a whiteboard, you know, and then they erased it so there was no record. Now, this is really just how low government goes in terms of playing the system for what they think is a perceived political advantage. Putting a bit of money into a seat here and fixing that road out there thinks that'll get them a lot of votes. I've never been convinced about that. I think if you were actually standing for something of principle and you are prepared to fight for it, it, it outweighs the significance of trying to buy the votes by you know, channeling particular money. You know, in this budget there's another regional fund, half a billion dollars or something, a slush fund for the National Party. These are terrible decisions. There's no accountability really because when it gets exposed, even the colour-coded allocation is a sports money. Morrison just said, oh, the Minister had the authority to do that and it wasn't done on political grounds. <laughs> no. <laughs> there isn't any person who thinks that having looked at those sheets that it was done on, mm. that wasn't done on political grounds, it definitely was. Anyway, I better go, I think yeah. that's my wife's very I careful. better let you get back to your family, but John Houston, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. No problem. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. For show notes and to join my mailing list, head to thejspod.com. The audio engineer for the Jolly Swagman podcast is Lawrence Moorfield. Our video editor is Alf Eddy. I'm Joe Walker. Until next week, thank you for listening. Ciao.